What's up, YouTube? Skylar Fiction here. Welcome to another conversation tonight. Uh, we got a very special guest. I'm super excited. Uh, Christopher Fisher is here. It's been a while since I've actually done one of these conversations, so I'm super excited. I think it's been like two months. Um, we're just waiting for a second because I want to make sure this audio works before I introduce Christopher and he tells us a little about himself. But I do want to make sure it is working. Yep, it works fantastic. Okay, so Christopher, welcome to Skylar Fiction Show. Uh, I would love just to hear a little bit about you, man. Tell us about yourself. I think you got a YouTube channel and a podcast. Yeah, uh, I'm Christopher Fisher. Uh, I don't know if I just cut you off there. but No, uh, please, please, go ahead. I'm the host of the podcast, God is Open. And uh, it, even if you're not a Christian, you'll probably enjoy a lot of the shows because it talks more about canonical criticism. It talks about the Bible, how the Bible is written. It talks about figures of speech and how language works. And I even break into other subjects, such as, I hope, hopefully we could go over a little bit tonight, like the Enuma Elish other Near East uh, ancient literature that's parallel to the Bible. So there's a lot of value in there, uh, take what you will. And I, I try to be open, honest. I quote a lot of secular scholars like Christine Hayes. I have her pulled up here on the screen. I'm big fan of Christine Hayes. One of the resources I would point your viewers tonight to is uh, she's got a free Yale University course lecture series on the Old Testament. It's very good, world-class. I, I tell even Christians, just starting out with the Bible, take that Yale University class. You'll know a lot about the, a lot about the Bible by the time you're done, even though she's a quote-unquote hostile witness. Very good stuff. So that, that's who I am. I try to do this podcast. Uh, my main goal is information, sharing information. I have a book out called God is Open. If you want a free PDF, I'll send it to you. If you want a Kindle edition, it's like four bucks or something. I don't really make profit off the stuff I do, so... Mm -hmm. not interested in that but yeah that's a little bit about myself dude awesome you know i and i do want a copy of that so I'll, yeah <laughs> I need my email later i'd love to check that out yeah here's the thing though the, yeah. the book Please. the book is not written from the perspective that the bible is true uh, it's written from the perspective of in order to know if we want to believe the bible or not we have to first know what's in the bible making sense of the bible before we could decide whether or not it's true and so be prepared for a lot of more technical looks at the Bible rather than, you know, a lot of these uh, Christian books just want to bloviate about uh, their, their specific theology that they want to import onto the text rather than analyzing the Bible systematically. Like, like for example, I don't use latter authors to override earlier authors. Presumably the earlier authors wouldn't have access to later authors, right? That's pretty reasonable. Sure. And the later authors were probably drawing for inspiration off the earlier authors. So if you're doing one or the other, you're probably going to take the latter authors in light of the earlier authors, just because that's the basis of their theology. Well, let me ask you this to get kind of started here. So when you kind of look at the Bible, uh, how do you view the Bible? So, well, are, you, so yeah, the, are we talking, so what, some of this stuff, like, or do we like, like Genesis, for instance, is this something you look as a literal story? Do we look at this as uh, allegory, parable? Uh, where, where would we start there? Well, first, the first thing we need to do is we need to yeah. look at it as historians. Uh, like, for example, if you're reading the Enuma Elish, I got uh, excerpts pulled up from the Enuma Elish so that we could go over 
how it's written, what it means, what the audience is supposed to take away from it. You need to approach it like you would any other historical ancient Near East text. Who was the audience? Who was writing? What was their purpose? Did they actually believe what they're writing? Did they mean for their audience to believe what they were writing? And so forth. And then from there, you could evaluate whether it's true or false based on what you've discovered from that. As opposed to some systematic theologies, I have a... (laughs) One of my recent podcasts was called Your Systematic Theology is Garbage, and it talks about how people uh, use these proof texts. What they do is they come to the Bible with their presuppositions of what they want their theology to be, and you've talked to these guys. The reason uh, I know your name is because someone sent me your podcast with a hyper-Calvinist, and uh, listening to that was that was very painful. That, 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 that poor kid was slaughtered. But uh, what he wants to do is he wants to import this God of Plato, God of Plotinus, a Neoplatonist philosopher, onto the text of the Bible, where God has to be an absolutely simple, pure being, unchanging, outside of time, and he can't relate. You, you, you notice from that podcast, he says, God can't receive anything to himself. Even glory, he doesn't maximize his glory. A glory is just kind of like a reflection of who God is, but he can't receive things unto himself. Which is not, if you're familiar with the biblical text, that's not the God of the Bible, but that is the God of Plato and Plotinus. You know, uh, that conversation was a very interesting conversation. Uh, and, I, and I will tell you, uh, I felt really kind of sad after having that one. Uh, usually, like after something where somebody says such, such in my view, heinous, extreme views, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, you just can't feel good. Like, I, I felt bad for the way this guy must live his life. Like, he's, he's, he's about, a kid. Yeah, he, that's, he'll, well, he'll, he'll grow up. Kid. Yeah, and that's what I'm hoping because, I mean, some of the things that he believed, I mean, he was willing to just throw anything out there and just say, you know, take whatever awful X, <laughs> you know, and was mm-hmm. like, you know what, for the purpose of God's glory. And, you know, and, you know, this kind of view that God, um, you know, purposely makes these things happen, like with intention. Uh, and I, I thought that was so, um, well, I mean, this is kind of a, well, at least the Calvinists I've talked to is, view on a lot of these things is that you know mm-hmm. nothing that happens here isn't according to god's plan and that from the very beginning uh whether it be um you know whatever awful thing we would view as awful not to say anything too specific but you know we can imagine in our heads any awful things that have ever happened within this earth all very specifically planned from god uh and for some greater glory or to bring glory to himself is what he said yes um, which i i don't even know within the context of that, what that would mean, you know, bringing glory to God. Like, how could you bring glory to God in in those ways? You Um, you can't in their system because God is above predicates. God is above relationships. And so in their systematic theology, all the glory on earth is just a reflection. It doesn't add to God at all. It's just a maximizing reflection of who God is, but God doesn't receive anything unto himself. But on that same point, I think I thought that conversation was funny as because he didn't even acknowledged the fact that God is not above criticism throughout the Bible. Job, if you read the book of Job, it is a harsh, heavy criticism of God. He Job uh, takes God to account, and is Job ever punished in the book? Job is said to have said what's right about God. He takes God to task. He says, might makes right with you. You just do what you want. You hurt me. You hurt others. And I'm going to die in my integrity. Even if you kill me, I know I can't defeat you in court. But the whole world will know that I'm in my integrity and you have done wrong to me. 
And so there, there's harsh. We're looking at yeah. Yeah, there's harsh criticisms of God. There's also the scene between uh, Abraham and Yahweh in which Abraham tempers God in the destruction of Sodom. God was going to go down and destroy all of Sodom. And you get this bargaining where where Abraham is trying to negotiate what, what is righteous, how much collateral damage, how many righteous people are worth destroying a city over. If you destroy a city and there's 50 righteous people, I don't know how big these cities were at the time, maybe like sure. 3,000 people. But uh, is that collateral damage of killing those righteous people worth wiping out the city? And there's this bargaining that goes on. And uh, just to add one more thing, in, no, Talmudic, in Talmudic literature, God actually does wrong and is taken to account in Talmudic literature commentary. I had uh, Dov Weiss on my program, and he's a Jewish scholar, and he talked about Talmudic literature and their conceptions of Yahweh. He also wrote the book, Pious Irreverence, in which, which goes through uh, all, all these accounts of people taking God to account throughout the Bible, saying that God is in the wrong, God has done wrong, God has been negligent, God has shirked his duties. It's a common theme in the Bible. Let's, you know, let's go with that because I, I'm really kind of interested to kind of hear your kind of views on some of those stories. So you take a story like uh, what you're talking with Abraham and talking about the righteous in the city. So how realistic is that story in your view? Like, is this a story? Like, what is this story? Is this, is there really an Abraham? Does Abraham really have this conversation with God? You know, what's going on? What's your opinions on it? Well, if, if you want to talk about my personal views, that's different than a historical take of uh, sure. in the canonical criticism sense where we try to figure out what the author is saying to his audience. I think the genre of text is supposed to be historical. I think the audience of Genesis were supposed to take these things as historical accounts. There's a lot of uh, accounts in there that that set... They set, set a history for the nation of Israel that they could look back on and be proud of. So it's, it's, not, it's not like poetry. It's meant to be taken as history. Sorry, I'm mute. Oh. <laughs> uh, okay, so, uh, so it's meant to be taken as history. So uh, from reading the Bible, we would take that God really did have this conversation with Abraham. And this was a genuine thing? It, it seems like, yeah, the authors seem to be uh, trying to communicate to their audience that this was an event that did happen and was to be taken seriously. So in, in that context, uh, what is righteous? Like, so when, when Abraham is arguing with God and he says, there's someone that's righteous left in the city, what does that mean to be righteous? Well, it's, it, we have to try to put ourselves in the mindset of uh, Abraham. It appears that there was only one righteous person when we actually get into the text, and it was Lot. And throughout the Bible, you have this theme where even unrighteous people are saved for the sake of the righteous. Like in the Noah narrative in Genesis 6, Noah's family is saved, although Noah's the only one who is considered righteous in, in the eyes of God, eyes of the God is the text. And so uh, what does it mean? Does, does it mean to be in a right standing with God? Does it mean to shun evil and to try to do what's right? That's probably what they meant when they're using that language. But uh, those types of questions are up for, to the, for debate. So as a good historian, we'd mm -hmm. probably want to look throughout the Genesis narrative. And I, I don't think Genesis was written by Moses. There's no internal evidence in the Bible that even claims that Genesis was written by Moses. And you have extra or uh, commentary in there like 
Uh, this was a time when there was no kings, which suggests that the whole of Genesis was written during the time of the kings, which is well after the time of the judges, if you know your Israelite history. Mm -hmm. Would um, It's interesting when we talk about that, right? When we talk about Lot, because Lot was one of the people, uh, I guess, well, he was, I think he was saved. His wife, well, was going to be saved, but she kind of looks back at Sodom and Gomorrah as they're leaving and escaping. But it always makes me, I, I, it, I always think about the scene where the angels are coming in and they're, you know, they're, they're, he's protecting the angels in his home and everyone outside finds out there's angels there, mm -hmm. which this, I, I, you know, historically, this would be interesting. Because I'm just kind of fascinated by this whole story. There's a lot of weird things in there to me, right? There's a lot of weird so, stuff there. A lot yeah. of weird, and it's, it's interesting to say the least. So, you know, for instance, right, you know, people, you know, and the people in the town, you know, and obviously the Bible describes them as wicked and. You know, they're doing all these awful things. But, like, they hear angels are there inside this house, and, like, their instinct is to go rape them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's mm -hmm. already kind of strange. So I'm like, well, is this, like, do human beings back then? This is, like, the first thing they think about is, like, hey, these guys got angels in this house. Let's go over and rape those angels, right? So you, you got different <laughs> yeah. appearances of angels throughout the Bible. Sometimes people fall down in fear, and sometimes they see the angels as human beings and they don't know that they're angels. And so I don't think in the Sodom narrative that the people knew that they were actual uh, angels. They seem to be just travelers that they just wanted to uh, rape. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I mean, that would make more sense, obviously, uh, with the story. Um, right. uh, well, then the next thing, right, then then we think about like what Lot offers. Because then Lot's like, well, listen, you know, don't, you know, don't rape these people. You can take my daughters. Like he's, he's like, he offers his daughters to the to the people outside to have sex with. Right. Which is once again strange to me because like they, you know, this is the guy God kind of let live in this story. They're like, well, you know, and I don't. I guess Lot was considered righteous. I guess at that point, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, they they offer him, but this is a guy. I mean, who offers his own? I, I, I mean, I get what the aspect that he's like. Hey, I'm trying to protect angels. But I, I don't know at some point, like, I don't know where, if that balances out in a sense. Like, right. you know, I, I think these, maybe these angels can take care of themselves. That may be a different issue. But it, it's strange to me that, like, this guy that we would consider good, uh, that would be what he goes to. Right. And, and that might be chalked up to ancient Near East uh, hospitality culture where yeah. where you protect your guests at, quote unquote, all costs. <laughs> um, but the Bible's not specific. The Bible actually sure. doesn't comment on that per se it doesn't a lot of a lot of genesis is actual narrative of what people say and do but it doesn't condemn or condone those actions if that makes sense sure um so. well yeah no yeah it definitely doesn't condemn them <laughs> there's no question i guess yeah. it really doesn't i'll give you that that doesn't necessarily condone them either um i i mean you could slightly maybe say it condones them well it kind of approves them in the sense that they let lot live like that's okay like he's good enough to let him uh, live in that sense, but yeah. Um, in uh, Dov Weiss's book, uh, he he quotes rabbis who criticize God for these things throughout the Bible, and so it, it's not like a non-known issue. And sure. uh, and people throughout the Bible, as we've already talked about, have criticized God, and God has affirmed their criticism, such as Job, such as Abraham, in our very text. Well, and that's another thing. Like, I, I think about that story, right? So this is why, personally, I don't think any of these stories were literal. This is why I think that, like, these were, like, if I want to, like, give God the best angle, like, if I'm being charitable 
And I want to think, you know, maybe this is just a, a parable or an allegory for something, something bigger for human beings to think about. Um, uh, like I would say, it's not real. But then you think about all those other things, and you probably heard this portion of it, right? And, you know, when we talk about people being righteous, you know, obviously this is a city with children and kids and stuff like that. And, like, you know, when God's arguing with Abraham, like, he, you, like we discount, like, those people aren't righteous. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the children, the kids aren't righteous. And then even if they were, like, let's just say they were, and really that's what I'm saying, why well, I think this is really now, it's not really God arguing with Abraham here. Um, if I'm being charitable, um, like what he just destroys everything. Like instead of doing like some kind of calculated system where he just like, okay, let me, let me see who the bad people are. All right. You, you, you dead. Yeah. That's, (laughs) that's, if, if you read through the Bible as well, a lot of those criticisms of God for inaction, a (laughs) lot If you look at their mindset, their mentality, it's like the wicked prosper. Lord, why do you let this happen? Your righteous are executed. Your righteous are killed. The wicked prosper. Their children prosper. Job has this argument. Uh, Jeremiah has this argument. And uh, the implication and explicitly throughout the Bible is that the children should be punished for the sins, quote unquote, sins of their parents. But this is subverted in Ezekiel 18. In Ezekiel 18, you, you can read through Ezekiel 18. It starts yeah. with, there is a saying, and the saying is that the parents do wrong and the children's teeth are set on edge, meaning sure. that the children are being punished for the sins of their parents. And he says, there's going to be a time where that, that saying is no more. So you see kind of a reversal in God's standard operating procedure in Ezekiel 19. So that, that's one thing you need to look at in the Bible is that it's, it's not this God of Greek metaphysics, which never changes, never learns. He learns a lot. He learns how to interact with human beings. He takes advice from human beings. Uh, look at the flood narrative. So he looks at mankind. Mankind is evil from their youth. Uh, there's, a, there's a huge global flood. It kills everything. They get off the ark, and God says, I will never again punish man and why is that? Do you, do you know the reason offhand why why he'll never again punish man like this? You know, I don't remember. Yeah, I honestly don't remember why he says it's, he... Uh... It's because the thoughts of his from his youth are on evil. He has learned something about man. He has learned that man is going to be evil from his uh, youth, and it's a lowering of Yahweh's standards in the text. Interesting. So... So, this is yeah. a very a different way to look at God. It's very interesting to me. So this is definitely not a typical Christian. So, yeah, Christine Hayes, I got yeah. her pulled up, and she, she'll go over this. Exactly what I just told you. Yeah. She'll talk about how he learned from the flood and learned about human characteristics. I got, uh, this is her in Huffington Post, and you can probably see the text on the screen. Sure, yeah. And I'll read it for your audience. The character Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible should not be confused with the God of Western theological speculation, generally referred to as God. The attributes assigned to God by post-biblical theologians, such as omniscience and immutability, are simply not attributes possessed by the character Yahweh, as drawn in the biblical narratives. Indeed, on several occasions, Yahweh is explicitly described as changing his mind, because when it comes to human beings, his learning curve is steep. Humans have free will. They act in ways that surprise him, and 
and he must change tact and respond. One of the greatest challenges for modern readers of the Hebrew Bible is to allow the text to mean what it says when what it says flies in the face of doctrines that emerge centuries later from philosophical debates about abstract category God. That is, uh, it's very interesting. It could, a very new kind of concept of God here, which, how do I even begin with this then? Um, so when God kind of created us, then if we kind of take this kind of uh, interpretation of him, it was really, it sounds like more of a kind of an experiment in a way. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely like, was an experiment. It was a failed experiment too. You have two repentances in the mm-hmm. Genesis 6 narrative. First, God resolves to destroy all of mankind. And then yeah. Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And my, my personal take on that eyes of the Lord is eyes of the Lord is sometimes used for angels or messengers throughout the Bible. Like there's seven eyes of the Lord that run to and fro on the earth. And, and these are angels. So it seems almost like the angels found, found Noah and advocated for Noah to Yahweh. And then as an afterthought, after resolving to destroy the world, Noah was saved on account of being advocated for. That's what it reads to me. And uh, David Kleins, he's, he's a Job scholar. He has a good paper on the Genesis narrative of, of that second repentance that's overlooked in the text. So, all right. So then God, you know, creates human beings. This kind of experiment creates the earth and I guess universe and things like that. And what, what, what would you view the purpose as? Was it just curiosity, creativity? Like, is it I mean, does, is it relationship? Like he wants something, some, some kind of relationship with humans? Like how do you view it? Um, it's, you, it almost it, seems that yeah. way. Remember, we need to be looking at the Bible with a historical perspective. What did the authors believe that was the purpose that God created the earth? And uh, you see inter- interesting interactions with mankind. Like God's first act towards mankind is to call the animals to him, to, to man, to see what man will call the animals. So it's almost like this curiosity that you have in the text. And you even have in Genesis 1, this deliberation of creating man in which God says to uh, probably the angels. You you don't see angels being created anywhere in the Genesis narrative. He says, uh, shall we create man in our image, basically? And it's this deliberation and this, this decision to create a creature in our own image. Maybe like you and I, you have kids, I have kids. It's interesting to watch them and to see how they develop and to see what they do. And you almost get that sense in the Genesis narrative. Like, for example, what was God's emotion in Genesis 6 when mankind rebelled? Was this, this his famous anger, his famous fury? It was regret. It was sadness. And so it's not until after God starts learning about mankind, per the text, that uh, it tur- turns from this surprise, this uh, this this hurt, to to more of an anger, and and then it kind of cycles between like anger, anger and hurt, depending on the circumstances. But surely, okay, if that's the case, like if we look at God in that kind of manner, then it it seems like it's got to be something a little different than what's written in this story, because then it it seems very problematic, right? Because then we're talking about like there being a tree of life and a tree of knowledge of good and evil right and then like basically what causes them to fall is they you know they eat from the uh tree of life not tree of life tree tree of knowledge of good and evil and mm-hmm. then this you know this tree makes them understand the difference or know what right and wrong is um and 
well, you know, it, in a sense, like why, like what was it for then? Like why put those trees there? If like in the end, like, you know, God's gonna be disappointed. I'm not even saying he could see the future. I'm just saying like, you know, if there's a possibility that some human's gonna eat from this tree and, and eating from this tree will cause devastating uh, consequences. Surely God would know there would be some consequences from this. Um, <laughs> Here's the thing. Yeah. Okay, so so Satan, well, or not Satan, I'm sorry. There's a serpent in the text. This The serpent's never identified as Satan sure. in that text. And he says to Eve, uh, let's pull it up real quick because yeah, this, please, this, please. Is, this is going to be funny. <clears throat> he says, the serpent said to the woman, or the woman says this, you sh- that God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, in that in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to women, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of your eyes, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So what happened? They eat of the tree and They realize that they're naked. <laughs> yeah. They realize they have no clothes. They uh, Well, did he lie to her? He said, You surely will not die. They didn't die. Uh, And then he said, your eyes will be opened. And their eyes were opened. So I I know the New Testament recalls this and says that the serpent deceived woman. Mm -hmm. But is that like lying to her or just trying to trick her into a precarious situation? He does not lie here. This is exactly what happened. God had threatened death and they never died. So either per the text, uh, putting on our historian goggles, because when we're reading this, we need to read it like it's any other ancient Near Eastern text. Uh, She she didn't die. Uh, They didn't die. And the serpent was right. So either God um, must have just been bluffing or was lying or perhaps showed mercy, decided that this punishment would probably be too harsh maybe for his new newly created creation so there's a lot of interesting things going on here but wouldn't it probably be more likely that this wasn't like a literal story though wouldn't it be more likely that this was some form of allegory uh uh and had some kind of message right like what what i had always heard uh growing up actually i shouldn't say growing up but i heard i read somewhere and i can't remember where it's been many many years but it was the most fascinating and when i was a christian uh, it was kind of the interpretation that I took of the story, which is that uh, well, all all the, the that you know because there's two creation stories, but that particular creation story was just a metaphor for childhood, and the idea that when you're a child uh, and you're basically in the garden, you're in the protection of your parents, right? Mm-hmm. And and as you grow older, uh, you eat from the tree of knowledge, you you gain knowledge and you grow wisdom, right? And what happens as you get older? You hit puberty, and Negativeness as a child is nothing. Kids run around negative and they don't think about anything of it. It's not even a thing. But as you grow older, you start to notice you're negative. You know, men, like it says after they eat from the tree of knowledge, they have to go work the field. Women now have to have childbirth. Uh, and they have to leave the protection of your parents. Uh, and that sounds much more reasonable to me. Like that's what well, that makes more and more sense than. Uh, some literal interpretation where like, even if we take like the, the kind of way we were going with it. And I think it's interesting. Don't get me wrong. It's certainly fascinating. Um, and less, I think contradictory than I think some of the other Christian versions of it. Um, it seems much more plausible than just some God who, you know, was curious, created Adam and Eve. And then for some reason made this tree that would allow them (laughs) if they ate from it to be able to see, uh, the difference between right and wrong. And then I, I, 
without even getting into that next step, what is right and wrong and evil and good and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, I don't know. Doesn't, doesn't it kind of seem more reasonable to you that it, it would be maybe more allegory than literal? Uh, maybe. So you'd look for signs of allegory. Uh, there, there's long extended allegory within the Bible, uh, within the Proverbs, which talks about how wisdom was in the beginning with God and wisdom does all these things. But you look for these vague statements with, with broad interpretation and broad, a broad mor- moral. There's a moral to it. So you look for key signs. It's just basically reading comprehension. How do we know that any story we read, if it's a myth, if it's fiction, if it's parable, is it poetry, is it history? And then on top of that, we have future biblical commentators throughout the Bible. And our question is, how did they take that? And so that it doesn't prove that that's the genre that it is. But when uh, people in the New Testament, for example, take Job, and they, they rank Job with other historical figures in the Bible. So did they take Job as poetry or did they take it as history? So you look for contextual clues. So talking about yeah. the Epic of Gilgamesh real quick, uh, there's a tree of life in the garden. Did you know that in the Epic of Gil- Gilgamesh, there's also a tree of life? Yeah, yeah I've heard similarities. Yeah, I've heard those, yeah. those things. I haven't read it to be honest with you, but I, I have heard that before. Yeah, so Epic of Gilgamesh, and I'd like to transition to, because we're already on the subject of reading yeah. comprehension, understanding phrases, understanding how language work works. Epic of Gilgamesh is in the same genre of literature as the Enuma Elish. It's the same Babylonian mythology. In the Enuma Elish, you have this god, Timot, who's trying to destroy all the other gods. The other gods, they get together and they rise to ascension, this Marduk. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the name Marduk, Babylonian god. And Marduk is able to de- defeat Timot and all her, her crew. There's other gods who tried and other gods who failed. And in that whole text, Marduk is a created god himself. So he's not like the ultimate god, but he rises to become the pan-ultimate god. And so I got pulled up. Let me pull up that tab. Excerpts. While you're doing that, I got to grab another beer real quick. I'll be right yeah. back. Go ahead and pull that up. And if you want to start telling the audience, it's all good. I'll be right back in one minute. All right. You'll be back with us. Sorry, everybody. Uh, I've been at work all day. This is my time to relax. It isn't Christopher driving me to drink. It's just <laughs> I needed a beer. Let's see if I can organize. I had this whole new setup. I wanted this like this crazy picture of me behind that someone drew and my hat in heaven that uh, this way. <laughs> my hat that's in heaven now that doesn't exist. But anyways, go ahead. I'm sorry, Christopher. So yeah, we're talking about reading comprehension and phrases. So for example, your Calvinist buddy and your Matt Slick buddy, I watched a few of your Matt Slick uh, interactions. <laughs> that was the best. And so what they like to do is they like to prove text. So they'll take these vague short statements, pull them out of context, and just assume their theology onto those phrases. And it's... <laughs> It's this wholly duplicitous way of reading the Bible. In that way, they're able to force their theology onto the Bible rather than let the Bible speak for itself. So let's read some of these phrases about Marduk. And remember, Marduk is a created god who rose to become the penultimate god through this uh, struggle with Timot, defeating this other Timot. And just imagine if these phrases were in the Bible, what would a Calvinist or your common Christian, what would they read from them? This is about uh, Marduk. You're the most honored of great gods. Your decree is unrivaled. Your command is on you. You, Marduk, are the most honored of the great gods. It says, uh, from this day, your pronouncement will be unchangeable. So imagine your pronouncement will be unchangeable is applied to Yahweh. 
the Calvinist would come in and they'd say, this means that God decrees everything. Everything's faded and nothing can be changed and no one can rival God. And there's a lot of these rivalry type uh, comments. So what's actually happening in this language here is that these are generalities. These are, these are uh, they're rules of thumb, I would say. So let's keep scrolling. There, there's, there's omniscience text. Even the Epic of Gilgamesh, I'm going to pull that up real quick. It starts off talking about Gilgamesh, who's a man. And it says, he who has seen everything, I will make known to the lands. I'll teach him about him who experienced all things. So this guy knows everything. He's experienced all things. Anu granted him the totality of knowledge of all. So does that sound like a man, Gilgamesh, is omniscient? Is that what we're supposed to take from this text? Or are we competent readers and we understand that these are generalities? They're not meant to be taken in a in a, a, a mechanical way. So when people come to the Bible and let's say the psalm says that God looks down from heavens and sees all things, they'll take that as a proof text of omniscience, that uh, God knows everything, past, present, and future, despite the actual context of the verse being God sitting in heaven and getting this act of omniscience, which God is gaining information through sight. There's a mechanical way or, or an organic way in which he gains information. If you remember back to the hyper-Calvinist chat, God can't gain anything unto himself because that would violate his, his simplicity, his unchangingness. It would violate his glory. He can't receive from outside himself. Does that make sense? Yes, it's really interesting. And I guess now, like with all this, right? So we started then, I'm building this new picture of this kind of God, right? That is very different (laughs) than the ones I've heard, at least other Christians can explain then. So then why would this kind of God be worthy of any worship? So That's a good question. Each person would have to answer that for themselves. Yeah. You know? And people take God to account throughout the Bible, and God changes based on the petitions of man in the Bible. And so, again, back to our historical goggles, before we know whether we want to believe the Bible, or sure. what the, if the Bible's accurate, or even if the Bible's true, and we want to choose not to worship Yahweh, uh, we have to at least know what's in the Bible. We oh, can't, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we can't just assume what we want to be true, like Matt Slick does. And and his whole metaphysics is based on Neoplatonism. And Neoplatonism, if your viewers aren't familiar, it's this idea that there's this eternal, simple one, uh, outside of time, unchangeable, can't be related to anything else in existence because that would cause composition. He can't have predicates. But from him, there's a different reality that that emanates from him that it's not caused by him because that would create composition. And uh, outside of that's the intellectual realm. It's a realm with less change, but with composition. And there's a third realm that spawns from that. If you read the writings of Origin of Alexandria, he writes about this where, where our current physical world is just a dissension from this intellectual realm. And our goal in, in Neoplatonism, in Augustine, in Origin, a lot of the early Christian fathers, is to do this platonic ascent where you return to the one. So a good Platonist, uh, they, will, they will get rid of everything physical. They'll, they'll starve their bodies. They'll, they'll, they'll disdain any material wealth, anything like that, and try to become so spiritual that they could ascend back into the realms. 
And so you have Augustine in the third century AD trying to teach rural peasants in Africa to ascend to the what? It's absolutely a ridiculous concept. And, and do you get any of that from the Bible? You don't. And, and Matt Slick and company, they assume this is the default metaphysics. So they'll talk about what makes God most perfect. Oh, the most perfect God can't change in any way. Most perfect God has to have this attribute and that attribute and that attribute. And, and this you, is a problem with how you describe in a sense. It's like how you view perfect, basically. You have this strange definition of perfect, and then you, you create this, and then you have to warp your God around it, basically. Yeah, it's a metaphysical yeah. system. And you have encountered this over and over in the videos I've watched, you talking to them about what what are the metaphysics of God? What makes God God? What what makes uh, you know yeah. the best God? And that's the debate. The, the debate. The dignum Dio, what makes God the best God that could possibly be? And that's that's not a Christian dialogue. Uh, the the authors of the Bible, Yahweh's, they're not concerned at all with that. That is third uh, century AD and starting in third century BC when Alexander took over Israel. Uh, that is that is a Platonic concern. It's not a biblical concern. They, they don't. The Bible's not a systematic theology textbook. So any. Uh, metaphysics that you're trying to import onto the Bible, it's not there. You're not getting that from the Bible. Let me ask you this then. So we take all this in. Technically, couldn't this just be some higher being or even alien, to be honest with you? It could be. It could be. Comes around, you know, comes to Earth and or has the ability to create Earth or planets or whatever, uh, form life through evolution, however you want to believe, and... Uh, basically just has more power than human beings. It could be. If you if you want to go out on a if you want to go out on a limb, uh, you could go look up ancient alien videos and they talk sure. about the uh Anakazi or Anunnaki or whoever these uh, Babylonian gods, this pantheon, and they claim, "Oh, these guys were space aliens and came and did all these things." That would be I'd say closer to how Yahweh is described in the Bible yeah. than the Greek metaphysics. Yahweh in the Bible has a divine council. He has subservient gods. And uh, the Psalms 82 is an ascension psalm where, where Yahweh says to these lesser gods who are ruling these other countries, he says, you guys have done wrong. You guys have uh, promoted uh, wickedness. You guys have promoted bad people. I'm reclaiming authority to myself. So there's almost a pantheon hierarchy of gods within the Bible, if that makes sense. Yeah, and that's what I mean. But it's no more, I guess, far-fetched than. Um, yeah, I, I just don't see. I don't know how do I articulate this. At this point, if we're going to describe this God in this kind of way, I, I don't know how we really understand what God is. Then at this point, right? Because if we just kind of look at him as some kind of curious being and. He doesn't have all knowledge. He just kind of like has to kind of figure things out. Um, he just sounds like a being that has more ability than us. And, and because of that ability has this power. And I, that basically is it. I mean, then it's just like it can express its will on us. Uh, because of that power, it can therefore do as it pleases, in a sense. Whether we agree with it or not, uh, whether we agree with whatever – right, wrong, evil, good, mm. all those kind of concepts kind of come in. And I, I don't know where the value comes in then. Well, I don't know if you have to make value 
out of whether something's true or false. So first we figure out what is, what does the Bible say? Then we evaluate, is it true or false? And then you could put subjective valuation on that. Is that the kind of God I want to worship or not? Or you can put that valuation wherever in the process. But so uh, each individual is going to have to, you know, uh, accomplish their own logical steps in that. But whether something's true or false is independent of whether it's good or bad. And, and on top of that, we do have biblical precedence for calling God to account. Well, I mean, but what good is that? <laughs> what's the, I mean, what's the point? Like, right? Like, like in the end, if even if we do call him into account, like, I guess the best we can do is we can hope we can change his mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah that's the point. Uh, that that is the theme of Job, is uh, Job's outrage at God, uh, Job's Job's a commitment to justice, to integrity, over against God who rules. In Job's account, when when Job's talking about how God rules the world through sheer power, might makes right, and that's Job's critique. And in the end, God vindicates Job. But you know, uh, if if God didn't vindicate Job, you know, he's going to be powerless to stop him. So your critiques are accurate. Your critiques have been addressed in the Bible, and so it's not like ancient Israel was was aloof from these concerns. They had these concerns deeply. And if you read through the Psalms, like when I was a kid, I always thought the Psalms were these lovey bunch of, oh, praise oh, God yeah, for speed. There's, there's, so, some, there's some uncomfortable ones built in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had no interest in the Psalms really, but you read the Psalms and there is a lot of deep hurt, critique. Uh, God, why do you hide your face from us? Your righteous are being slaughtered. Wake up, listen to us. Why do you do this to us? There's deep criticism of who God is. And this was a constant struggle in Israel. So, I, ah, oh man, I, you know, it's hard. It's because I'm trying to fix. So then, all right. So from a biblical view of the Bible, from your interpretation of reading it in a historical uh, context, so... What is it God wants? What is it God wants? It seems like he wants fellowship. Uh, it seems like, so So basically the plot of the Bible, and the Bible has a plot, is God creates man for what looks like a love relationship. Mm-hmm. Looks like they fall. Genesis 6 is like the real fall. I know a lot of Christians will say, oh, original sin, Genesis 3. Genesis 6 is really the turn, tipping point where God undoes creation and then redoes creation, and then sets out to reach humanity, and he establishes a priest nation. And so this priest nation was Israel, and their goal was to proselytize the world. And they were given special rules that applied only to themselves. A very interesting thing is you're not going to find any Old Testament passages that will like execute or criticize pagans for not worshiping Yahweh. All those rules are applicable only to Israel. Because all these other nations had their different gods, and it wasn't a crime to worship a different god if you were a pagan nation. It was only if you were an Israelite where that would be punished. Like, even when God is throwing out the people of the land, it's for moral crimes. It's not for religious um, fornication with other gods. Does that make sense? Sure. Do, now, do we think these other gods are real then, too? Like, oh, we the, these other nations? Like? Yeah, we, we talked a little bit about Psalms 82, in which mm-hmm. the sentient psalm where God retakes or takes, depending on your interpretation, authority from these other gods to himself. You have passages in uh, Exodus where 
God's not only punishing the Egyptians, he's punishing their gods. You have Paul in the New Testament saying these people are sacrificing to demons. And even Neoplatonists, who are Christian critics, they criticized Christians. They said, what's the difference between your demons and our pantheons of God? You guys are arguing semantics, whereas you guys actually believe what we believe. Yeah, I, I, I really don't know. Yeah, at this point, yeah, I don't know if I can see much difference in a sense than like with these other gods and, you know, and it, it, I guess you would probably have a very different view on hell and things like that. Like, do you think under there's actually a really hell? Like, a, is it just annihilation? Like, well, no, you know, actually, before we get there, I want to go back to something you said because I just thought about this. Like the, the whole idea of a relationship. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Like, I, I think, you know, the Bible may lay that out, right? Yeah. But but the problem is in reality, what we see here, uh, it doesn't seem like there's much of any kind of relationship, right? There may be in the sense of like someone feels there's some kind of relationship, like they pray or they feel comforted um, by, you know, praying or worship or things like that. Or uh, But in what I see in existence, I don't see really God playing much of a part of anything like kind of just letting things be. And that's fine. Like if, there, if there's a God and God's doing that, that's whatever. I was a deist for a long time. And that's kind of the view I kind of took on it uh, is that he kind of stayed out of our lives. Well, I, sh- I shouldn't say that. I actually had a, uh, I was more of a pantheist uh, deist. So I kind of thought God was uh, all this. So uh, I, I don't know. It seems like by looking at reality, that doesn't really match up. Like it may say that in scripture and it mm. may be the narrative, but then when we look at reality, that doesn't seem to match up. Yeah, that that'd be putting a modern critique on the ancient literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, Israel experienced the same thing. So you got three types of psalms. You got psalms of uh, orientation, you'd say, where everything is going good. God is generally praised for his good works. So, psalms of disorientation, where things are going wrong wonder where God is in the whole process, and Psalms of reorientation, which God acts to move them from a state of disorientation into reorientation. Mm-hmm. So these are things that they struggled with and uh, things that they they did attribute historical events to God. And all of Isaiah uh, 40 through 48 is this appeal to the past history because they're they competing with false gods at the time, or false gods, uh, it might be demons or whatever. Um, they're competing with these other gods. And so the argument had to be made in Isaiah 40 through 48. A look at Yahweh, uh, look at what he said to his prophets, and then look at those things being fulfilled. You can know he's the true God because he said what he would do, and then they would happen. So it's this appeal to historical events. God does what he says. And then an appeal, of course, to ancient ancient narratives of being uh, freed from the Exodus, which is probably the most uh, commonly cited proof text in the Bible where people are talking about God's power acts, especially towards Israel. Remember the Exodus. Remember what God did for you to free you from Egypt. And so, you, you know, your and I, our lived experience might be different than the overall theme of the Bible. Uh, sure. Their experiences were generally like that as well. There, there were periods of of what we experience, and there's periods, uh, the periods of, of bliss where everything is going well, and you know, so they had the same type of struggles, and you actually read that in the text. Well, we're, what we should say is it's described like that in the Bible. We don't really know right. if these people had these experiences. Uh, from what I understand, there's no historical record of the Jews ever being captured uh, in Egypt, uh, some kind of mass, mass exodus or anything like that. Um, 
so like i like i guess it just goes back like and even when you're talking about the psalms like really you're just saying this is just how people look at the world right so you know sometimes you look at an event like uh it's just all how you how you perceive things right like you, mm-hmm. you view things through your own lens of your own mind and you know some people when something awful happens to them they look at it as a way to i don't know someone loses their job and they look at it as an opportunity to find a new one or you know someone something bad happens to them they find it's a way for them to grow stronger as a human being right <laughs> yeah not, you know so that in a way that's they would look at it as something positive they might write a positive song right then you you have somebody something bad happens to them and they're like oh woe is me you mm-hmm. know the world is terrible look what thy god has done to me you know and they view it that way yeah or, you know what i'm saying like but none of this seems to I, to me there's just no reason to believe this is there's really a god in any of this right like the way the bible describes it that's that's all good and great and all that kind of stuff but in the end it's just to me it seems like just stories even though it may be littered with historical stuff like there may be obviously those civils a lot of those civilizations existed and there's groups of people existed um but it doesn't actually make um this stuff true right and that that's uh again I, i'm my purpose on the podcast is talked about yeah. the canonical criticism perspective where we're trying to take the text and see what it meant to the audience from the author and our individual subjective analysis on whether it's true or false. That's up to every individual. That makes but, sense. I'm not, I'm not I, doubting what you say. Sure. Sure. No, no, no problem. But how do we even know this is real? Like, how do we know these aren't just stories? Like, how do we even know? Like when we talk about like a story being from the author's perspective, right? Mm-hmm. How do we know that's even the author's perspective? How do we not know it's just all BS? Like, it's just all just some story that the author wrote. Right. Maybe they're trying to convey some kind of message. Fair enough. Yeah. Right. But like it doesn't mean that this story actually happened in the way that they're describing it. Yeah, that's like, true. And so then you'd know. go through um, because the, the Bible is an ancient Near East text. You'd look to see what it says and see if it lines up with our historical data. But we can't do that with some of the like the most of the Old Testament. We, we don't have that well. Most, of the to, I mean, you're talking thousands and thousands. You know, did did you ever listen ago, to? Yeah. You know Bart Ehrman, right? You listen sure, to Bart Ehrman? Uh, uh, not much, I'll be honest with you. But I, I know I'm very – yeah, I know he's, he was a Christian for a long time. and Yeah, well, he has this podcast and, with the atheist guy in mm-hmm. which the atheist guy tries to claim that Jesus never existed, which is a, not the historical position. The Bart Ehrman sure. position is Jesus did exist, uh, but a lot of these stories in the Bible are false. And so Bart Ehrman actually does a really good job of talking about – how we know historical events happened or just didn't happen. Historical events are not like you can't test them in the same way that you would uh, science. You know, you know that uh, whatever uh, ice freezes or water freezes at a certain temperature. History is not repeatable in that fashion. So your historical evidence is going to be a little bit different than that. You might have physical remains of things that are said to happen in the Bible. Uh, but you'll have to evaluate that evidence on a case-per-case case basis. But isn't that really just dealing with locations is what we're talking about here? Because there's no way to – you're not going to have – I mean, yes, I've heard there's arguments for the existence of Jesus. And I'm not going – like, but we don't know if he was a god or whatever, right? There's yeah. no evidence that he actually rose from the dead. Um, and we don't have – like we can't go to Job and know, hey, this thing really happened between Job. We can't go to Genesis, story of Genesis – and figure out anything that really happened with any kind of relationship between God and talking to people. Like the only things we could really look at historically, at least from my understanding, would be 
location. Like, yeah, great, these locations existed in the Bible. Of course, I mean, it makes more sense when they're writing the stories. So, like, you know, yeah. they have a reference point. So, like, but that doesn't, I, I don't know if that ends, any, that doesn't add any more value to why we should put anything into this book. Like, why would we want to, why would I want to believe in God? Who is this God? You know, what does this God want from me? Right? Mm-hmm. None of that can be obtained by any kind of, from what I would understand, of historical context or history or things like that. Yeah, that that's the extent of uh, history, what, what we can mm-hmm. show through history. Even like looking at the letters of Lincoln, you could say, well, this was written, but did this actually happen or did it happen with this detail? Stuff like sure. that. So there's a certain amount of, if, if you trust the evidence, you allow more leeway than you would if it's untrustworthy evidence. You know, just, just your normal historical burden of proof you'd probably apply to the Bible. And each sure. individual could evaluate whether or not the Bible is history. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, yes, but like what more than locations are we going to get out of this? Like what could we get? Like how am I, how from using history am I going to know the true uh, nature of God? The, what, how, could, how could we get to the bottom of this? Like how could I truly know God from reading the Bible? Uh, that's it, again, that's a little outside the scope of what I came want, really wanted to talk about, which is canonical sure. criticism. But it, but it is kind of gets to the root of it. And, and don't get me wrong, I no, and I appreciate it. Like we'll stay on this, you know. Um, but in in a, in in the bigger sense, like yeah, well, I mean, I already know. Like don't get me wrong. Like I know this is just a book written by human beings, okay. and like they they feel like whatever they may have had some kind of experience with God. Um, and they're writing this experience through story and things like that. Um, but that doesn't get us anywhere to a certain degree. It mm-hmm. doesn't really get us to the point to why one should have faith in God or one should believe in God. It just gets us to a point to like, yeah, there's all these different people that had different meanings. And, you know, these Christians over here have believed something than these Christians over here. And, you know, great. Where do we go from here? Right? Like, right. Like what's like what like what makes you like what do you get at your what kind of Christian are you I don't even know yet. what kind of <laughs> like, Christian uh, yeah yeah uh, like uh, how, how would you how would you describe your beliefs where I'd would they say, maybe differ from a traditional Christian like where would they align what's I'd say like? I'm a non-denominational Protestant uh, you know sure. open theist and so. Uh, I think a lot of the Bible is history. Uh, I'm not here to debate the factors. I think the flood was global based on forensic evidence. I think Sodom was a real place based on forensic evidence. I think it was destroyed by fire via forensic evidence. I think Mount Sinai was a historical place. How would we know that? How how many thousands of years ago do you believe Sodom and Gomorrah was? Well, I don't know. There, there's, there, there's well, a History Channel episode on like, Sodom and Gomorrah. Throw a ball out there. Like, well, I'm not expecting you to, to, to you know, pinpoint it down, but like, we talking ten thousand years? Yeah. Talking two thousand years? Like, how many thousands of years? What's a ballpark? When it happened, I, yeah. I had the date somewhere. Uh, it might be on my blog. My other blog is realityisnotoptional.com, mm-hmm. and I put other miscellaneous art- articles there. <clears throat> so you could either go to God is Open for more open theist related literature and reality is not optional.com for miscellaneous. I think I have an article there talking about Sodom, the demographics of Sodom and stuff like that. 
but yeah, I don't but have would, it. How would we have any kind of historical to know that it burnt down? Like if it was thousands of years ago, like you would admit because it they be dug it up. They dug it up. Well, where, like, where, where in the world would this have been? Uh, there, there's a whole History Channel documentary on it, and basically what they do mm-hmm. is they say, oh, all, oh, the whole city was destroyed by fire, but. Uh, we choose not to believe that it happened the way the Bible describes. It was was their conclusion of their documentary on their finding of Sodom. Well, and so they, whether or not that's the historical like, Sodom. Yeah, but know. yeah, I was gonna say, how would they connect that this is related to, I mean, yeah, sure. Say, let's grant a couple things, right? Let's grant there was a Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll grant right. that, right? So how would we connect that that time period when Sodom and Gomorrah burnt down because I mean, cities burned down. That's there's no doubt that's happened in the past. Yeah, I mean, London wasn't it? London that almost completely burnt down at one point. Were started by in a barn or something. Someone knocked over a fire in a barn, and it basically almost spread through the whole entire city. Mm. Like we can't connect that with God necessarily. Like great, somebody like took a story where hey, this city burnt down, and then added the God to it to make it more theological, not theological, but more. Uh, to, I don't know, like take their own biases is what I would say. Someone who already believes in God's like, you know, well, you know, the reason the city burned down is because there was a bunch of gay people there committing immoral acts, <laughs> right? Like, so yeah. it's like, it's that's the human nature of things. This is what we do as human beings is we take our own biases, we take our own beliefs, and then we look into things and then we justify them, right? Yeah. That's why our, I think our political system is so messed up now is because people either take that R or that D and they're like, hey, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat. And then what they do is they, you know, they listen to things that make them feel good. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, I, and I think they um, project that into things, right? Yeah, confirmation bias, being selective in sources. Yeah. And then lack of knowledge. Like, if you don't have any knowledge, you have no understanding of how the world works. Mm-hmm. Like, if you don't know that whatever, like, if you didn't know that you get sick, if you don't wash your hand, you can spread bacteria by not washing your hands or disease and things like that. Like you, you may just think, "Hey, that's what God, God wanted." You know, God uh, was striking people with lightning until we invented uh, lightning rods. Then he decided to target the lightning exactly. rods. I, I guess that's what I'm getting. So, like when we look at all this with the Bible, the only thing, in my opinion, that historical context can show is just location. Like what, what, what? This is the location. This city existed. Well, great. Sodom and Gomorrah existed. We have no clue if God actually intervened in it. And yes, a city could burn down, but mm-hmm. it doesn't mean God actually burnt it down. Um, and I mean, and then what would make? There's nothing about a fire that would make someone look back and then they would drop dead. Or wasn't it they turned to ash? Right? Wasn't it Lot's um, wife? Lot's wife turned to a pillar of salt. Pillar of salt. I'm sorry. That's what it was. A pillar of salt. And mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense. So if it was just a fire, what about fire makes someone turn to salt? Well, I think I think contextually it's supposed to be uh, a divine act against her. But yeah, I, 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 I'm not saying your criticisms yeah. aren't legitimate. Uh, they're legitimate criticisms. You any any set of data. This is just how data operates. You can look at any statistics and come away. This is in my book as well. I'll send sure. you my book. Any any set of data you could come to alternative interpretations of, and I, in the book I give the example: the same messy room you might think is uh, due to years of neglect, or it might be due to like a movie to producer setting up a scene for a film. Yeah. You know, any set of data has multiple interpretations, and so what we do is try to figure out what's the most probable uh, interpretation of the data based on our data set. 
And so I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying your views are invalid. Well, no, 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 no. And I appreciate that. But so why would you choose God in that scenario? Why would you say God is the most uh, reasonable answer for a city being burnt down that we found from whatever thousands of years ago? Right. So uh, because of a consistency in the biblical narrative, again, this is a little bit outside. Mm, the, uh, yeah, I know. But like, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I don't know when you I don't know what you mean by consistency in the biblical narrative. Uh, uh, forensically yeah. is what I'm talking about. But that's a that's a different podcast. Sure, sure. Uh, the what I I try to get, I don't even talk about creation, evolution, forensic evidence on the God is Open podcast. I talk about the nature and character of God as described in the Bible. If that makes sense. No, that's yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's fine. Um, but you're. I mean, you're. You're. I don't imagine you're a young Earth creationist by any means. <laughs> Well, I, I am, uh, in, in a sense, in a sense. Uh, when you're looking at the introductory sentence in Genesis 1-1, we'll pull it up for your audience. Sure, please. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you talked about the second uh, creation narrative as well. Genesis 2-4, these are the generations of heaven and earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made them, heaven, uh, earth and heavens. Those are both functioning in the same sense. Those are both... They're parallel statements. They're basically an introduction to the story. So God's first act is not actually described in Genesis 1-1. It's actually described in Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light. So pre-existing Genesis 1-1 is a watery, watery void. Um, there's the angels, as we get from this text. And so, We're Spirit saying of water God... before the sun? Wait, 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 what was this? The earth was without form. So, yeah. but there was a sun first, right? Well, not according to the text. Sure. The but sun's like, created I mean, later. We, you would have to agree by science, we would agree that the sun did come first. We're, we're talking about uh, canonical criticism here. So what, what does the text sure. say? No, I'm not. Well, I'm, I'm asking you, though, because you believe this, but I'm asking you, like, you believe science when we, we believe in our universe, the sun came before the earth. Like, you can't have light without the sun. You can't? Uh, I, I can make a fire with the light. Again, yeah, that, but, yeah, that, but uh, you know that's a little uh, that's you know you know what the problems are with that because you have all these other things now that can make fire. Wait, you you were talking. It's a in, in the in scriptures is God created the heavens and the earth. You know this is before mm. when the earth were, was when without form and void. So you're saying you don't believe that the sun was created before the earth? You can't make all these arguments, uh, man, about, you know, staying within history, historical evidence and things like that, but then go against science and say that it's not against science. Do you have historical evidence that the sun preexisted the creation well, of the well, earth? Historical evidence, it doesn't fall under the same cat. It, it, it's, it's, it's not it, like so you have to look like at you have to treat history like history. You know, history is true through different means. Than you would other things like miracles aren't going to be untestable god parting the waters that's not going to be something you could recreate via quote unquote scientific method to try to prove or disprove sure it like, you, if, you, it's you, a different category i'm starting to get the feeling you think like the earth is like less than ten thousand years old is what i'm starting to get the feeling of now well not necessarily not like, not okay. necessarily so in genesis one that are like that the earth and the universe is like millions and millions of years old uh, not necessarily. Why not? Like, what What about the science don't you bind to? 
what about is the it? science? Do yeah, I like, buy yeah. into? I mean, obviously the majority, and I mean, obviously just because the majority of something believes something doesn't mean it's the case. But I, I think in this kind of context, I think it's safe to say that people who have dedicated their life and we have, you know, um, you know, hundreds of years of, well, I wouldn't say hundreds of years, but at least we have much more technology that can measure these kind of things and we can look at uh, some stuff. I mean, we'd have to kind of believe that it's more than 10,000 years old, at least more than 100,000 years old. I would say millions. Are okay, maybe, uh, maybe. Uh, the Genesis 1-1 doesn't speak to that. Well, of course. Or Genesis doesn't Bible, speak to that. Well, 300,000 years, these people would have no clue about what was going on within how the Earth or universe was created. These are human beings who wrote this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, my again, my my main purpose is to look at the Bible, see what the Bible says, and then after the fact, then we could do this subjective analysis whether or not the Bible is true. So the first question well, is, what does the science, Bible say? That's not even subjective. I mean, that's measurable through science that the Earth isn't. The, 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 the Bible doesn't say whether the Earth is a thousand years old or a million years old. It doesn't say that. So there's nothing really to kind of dispute there. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you have something that says, like, the Bible says it's only a couple thousand years old or something like that. Um, like you just have to, you're basically, it'd be non-biblical. You're just disagreeing with science in general. Okay. So do you, how much do you know about dinosaur DNA and dinosaur soft tissue? You know a lot? Oh, not a lot. I have friends that, I have a friend that's a, a paleontologist. You know what? That'd be, you'd be a great guy to have on with him. I have a friend, a good friend of mine that I work with that's actually a paleontologist. Uh, and that's an amazing, brilliant guy when it comes to this stuff. But yeah. go ahead. What was your point? Okay. So we have dinosaur DNA. Um, when a dinosaur DNA first came out, everyone thought it was fake because DNA would last maybe 50,000 years at most or 200,000 years and this DNA is millions and millions of years old flabbergasted everyone everyone said it's fake everyone said soft biological dinosaur material was all fake it turns out it's all true it's all we, we have dinosaur DNA where, where are we getting this from oh we got uh, a huge list I could post a list to you somewhere yeah about dinosaur uh, DNA on the screen real quick like any kind of like yeah give me give me a second yeah because I would be interesting to see somehow we can get dinosaur DNA left over. I mean, I, I know they interesting. All right. Yeah, that puts a new spin on things. Okay, so here's some uh, soft tissue links. We got uh, carbon uh, dating uh, also. Yeah. All right. So, we, we again, this is outside the scope of what I'm here for. Papers and everything like that, yeah. I would imagine. A lot, a lot of times they're quoting evolutionists, and people will get mad at uh, creationists for quoting evolutionists. But it, just like we're, I quote Christine Hayes, it's always best to criticize or quote people that don't agree with you because they're probably more objective towards it. And so there's been carbon-14 dating done on this uh, DNA, dinosaur DNA, and where, where do you think it ranks, carbon oh, dating I, on this I, DNA? I'd be really interested to hear what you say. I don't know. <laughs> uh, in the thousands of years. Oh, and, I, I call bullshit on this. I'm, gonna, I'm sorry. You, I haven't researched that's, that's, that's I'm fine. just on this. I'm, I'm going to just, Again, this is just this, my this opinion. Is, but I can gar- I, this has got to be a very minority people that would say dinosaur DNA is thousands. So human beings and. No, 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 no. Uh, uh, their, their latest counter uh, argument is that since there's iron in the blood, which gave everything, uh, you know, every time, first of all, every time carbon 14 is found in anything. Everyone claims, oh, contamination, even in diamonds. They claim that diamonds, uh, one of the hardest substances known to man, are, are uh, contaminated with carbon-14 because carbon-14 in diamonds, uh, carbon-14 dissipates over, over 
uh, 50,000 years, I think you can't detect it anymore. And they find carbon-14 in diamonds. Carbon-14 in dinosaurs are uh, calculating in at thousands of years, not millions of years. So you're saying brontosaurus is lived when human beings live? Well, they claim brontosaurus isn't like a real dinosaur. I don't know. But anyway, again. A t- so wait a minute. No, no, no. We're not going to move past this. It's like you're telling me that T-Rexes live side by side with human beings. Again, this is outside the scope of what I, I would I like know, to talk but, about. Man, you can't like, that's not fair. You it's not something I prepared for. And I wanted to talk about. Like, I won't, I'm not going to hold you to the fire, but I need to know where you stand on this. Like you think T-Rexes. And human beings lived in the same time. Yeah, period. and I think the Pollux River uh, shows that because you have interlocking dinosaur and human footprints that go below strata, which shows mm-hmm. that it's, it's not a planted footprint. Because when they dug further into the bedrock, they found that it overlapped under the bedrock. So and, these are preserved and fossils. And what happened to all these dinosaurs then? If, if, how did we survive and all these other dinosaurs then died? It would have been probably something like the flood. Again, I, I'm not an expert. I'm not here to talk about okay, this subject. All right. But if you, if you want to learn more about it, I got the website pulled up about the soft original tissue. You could go there. You could pull up all the sources. You could look at the debates. You could look at this. These evolutionists refusing a $23,000 grant to carbon-14 test the, the soft dinosaur tissue because they didn't want to. And they are on record. They are phone recorded saying that the results might be used by creationists so that's why they refused twenty three thousand dollars to carbon date the soft dinosaur tissue but more so and more you, soft so dinosaur like tissue you there's like this big conspiracy going on like where like the majority you, you wouldn't you can't argue that the majority of scientists believe that dinosaurs like the t-rex coexist with human beings uh, again, outside the scope of what I'm careful I mean, here to real. talk about. But I will say the fact is, though, the majority of scientists, whether we pull up whatever you're arguing here, and I haven't researched it, so I, I don't know. Yeah, I, just, I know, but I, I will throw say it out that there, the majority but... of scientists do not believe what you were saying right now, and you disagree. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a conspiracy. Is. You talked about. It has to be on that level. Wait, 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 wait. wait. You You've it. already talked about a self a self deception uh, of confirmation bias. Oh. You know, that's far past confirmation bias at that point. I mean, I'll have, you know what, next time, I'm going to invite my paleontologist for now. We're going to talk about it. This is a good subject. All right, keep going. Let's go on. I just, but I need to clear that up because um, I just, I'm starting to be, I'm starting Uh, to think that you're, you're, you probably are a little bit more, um, you seem like you're probably a more a little bit more literalist than I think you're letting on here in this discussion of the Bible. Uh, that that might be the, that that's that's the beauty of this. So yeah. canonical criticism, taking the sure. Bible and figuring out what the author is trying to communicate to the audience, it should be a neutral pursuit. You and I should be sure. in agreement, a hundred percent, and have a yeah. rational conversation about the meaning and purpose of the text, whether the text is literal, whether it's historical, how to take these descriptions that that they're giving out. And the reason that I'm on is to talk about these these people you interact with, like the Matt Slicks of the world, who don't do that. They want to impose their own theology onto the Bible rather than allowing the Bible to form a theology for them. But to a certain degree, you're not that far off from what they believe, though. Maybe not someone like Matt Slick, but like you kind of generally believe the same things they do. Well, that might be true, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like... The same criticisms I would have towards those people and the problems with the Bible and those things would, would follow. Yeah, that's true, except for, except yeah. for the, the reason why I uh, contacted you to have this sure. discussion 
as their takes on God, their, their claims about what the Bible says about God, which you were taking that Calvinist to task. He would say something, yeah. and then you would ask him for the biblical reference. And then you'd say, does that really say that? Which showed that you actually cared about what the Bible says, as yeah. opposed to what your, your uh, guest was trying to claim that the Bible says. Sure. So well, I saw yeah. a lot of honesty in that, yeah. and uh, I, I really respect you for how you handled that that conversation. No, no, and I appreciate that. But like when then like so like we've got to then like if I'm going to take the position that the Bible's true, then then like I w there's a couple things I want to know then that I want to know I want to let's I want to know what sin is then under the on a, under a biblical interpretation. So what is sin? <laughs> That's a really good question. I don't. I don't know if the Bible. There's the biblical tension of what uh, the different authors kind of count as sin. Is sin a rebellion from God? Is it a rebellion against a morality that's outside of God? Can God sin? Uh, you know, questions like these. The because the Bible is not a systematic theology, it doesn't address these kinds of questions. And so when people are coming to you and they're saying. This is de facto what sin is, and sin is metaphysical, and it stains our soul, and then this and this needs to happen to get rid of that. that that's imposition on the text rather than letting the text speak for itself. And typically, a good rule of thumb, if you're reading the Bible, is if anyone makes two jumps of logic, they say this verse says this, and this verse says this, and so then you add in this verse plus ver this verse means this third verse, Anytime they get past two steps of logic, they're probably just making it all up. They, they, they're really stretching to try to pull something from the Bible rather than letting the Bible speak for itself. So would you say the Bible doesn't really tell you what sin is then? Uh, I don't think there's a, a consistent de facto definition. There's, there's approximations that you get. So would uh, sin be related to morality at all? You would think so, yeah. So then what is morality? What is morality? That's yeah, also not a question that the, the Bible actually addresses. So then how, do you, how would you know what was right and wrong? Well, in Romans, Paul claims that everyone is embedded some sort of inherent knowledge of right and wrong. And then you have on top of that some more explicit, explicit commands in the Bible, but but one thing, one problem I have with your criticism of hyper-Calvinist guy sure. is you're taking Levitical passages, which were meant to the priest nation of Israel to set them apart from the general population, and then assuming they apply to all of humanity, which just wasn't the case. But why? Well, well, no, I don't, I don't even well, I don't necessarily think they were meant for all of humanity. My argument was that, like, when someone argues that morality is the distinction between right and wrong, right, and right being things that align with God's nature and wrong being those that go against God's nature, and then God says this is wrong to do in the Old Testament, then it's going against his nature, and then later on he says that it's not wrong, right? Like eating pork, for instance, uh, wearing mixed fabrics. Uh, if, if won't, these, then these Levitical laws weren't moral. They, were they just weren't. Immoral. They weren't. They were they symbolic were laws, laws meant to distinguish a priest nation because... <sighs> If you remember back to the plot of the Bible, God was attempting to reach all of humanity through a special people, which were given special priestly laws that they had to follow to set them apart from the world. And from that, then they would proselytize the rest of the world, which Why? is supposed to... Like such a half, it's the worst way to do things. Like, 
why would that be effective at all? Like, and then it's so like, why not just communicate with people? Well, it, it, if we're looking at the plot of the Bible, it looks like God tried to do that initially. But and so the, the Bible is a cascading contingency plan. God tries X, Y, Z. It doesn't work. God tries uh, X, Y, Z, too. It doesn't work. God tries whatever. It doesn't work. And so that's what the New Testament is. It's a failure of the priest nation of Israel to accomplish what their goal was. And then you have Paul and Romans talking about a dissolution of this priest people. And that's where you get a lot of these Calvinists. They don't understand the historical context of what's going on in Romans. So they think it's all about individual specific salvation rather than a revoke revoking of this priestly duties and uh, opening up to all of humanity. But I would disagree with you. It worked fine. Why, why did it not work in the Garden of Eden? It's just God didn't like what they did, so he just did what It's not you're disagreed with me. You, yeah. you disagree with the biblical authors, and that's it's, it's well, yeah, perfectly that's legitimate. That's disingenuous, because you believe the biblical authors. And but I'm not they, here to defend my own beliefs. I'm not here to talk about what yeah. I believe. I'm here to talk about what the biblical authors okay. believe. Okay, well, then the biblical authors are nonsensical. They, that, they, it that, doesn't. It doesn't make any sense because God's doing things in asinine ways that are. If I can figure out that it's more effective to communicate directly to people and God mm-hmm. can't, He seems kind of like a moron. And I, I know that sounds harsh, and I'm not trying to offend you or anything like that. But if if He can't figure out that direct relationship with people, like communication with people, and may maybe not doing things like uh, putting a, a tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden where yeah. human beings can get a hold of it. Uh, isn't a good idea. Like you're a parent, I'm a parent. Yeah. You wouldn't you wouldn't leave a loaded gun on a table to where your children could get access to it. Would I? <laughs> uh, I don't like. I, I would think you wouldn't, right? Like even if you taught your kids, like even if you taught your kids gun safety and to respect guns, mm-hmm. you're smart enough to know that at certain ages, like you know what? Because think about like I, I know why growing up there was lots of things my parents told me not to do, and I still did them. Right. Because I'm like, you know, I didn't care or whatever reason. Right. I, I just didn't have the capability and understanding to know that this was a bad decision, whether my parents told me it was right or wrong or not. Yeah. So on, like, on the other hand, though, we yeah. do give our kids liberty like uh, my kids. They, they fight. I got I got, I got yeah. six kids. I got a lot of babies. Yeah. Shit, man, it's a lot of kids, a lot of work. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, they take care of themselves. But yeah. sometimes they'll fight. Sometimes I'll intervene. Sometimes I'll let them experience a conflict or not intervene yeah. i'll let them get hurt because sometimes letting them get hurt is the right thing to do and micromanaging uh, one of the, one of the themes of job is sure. that god's not a micromanager that god Whoa, god doesn't control manager that's not that's it may be the theme of job but throughout the biblical text he micromanages things uh, all for example Oh, for example, uh, like telling you specifically how you have to live, like, like but he doesn't. In, the, in the Israeli culture, like you can't do this, you have to yeah, do this. That's, like that's, that's specifically micromanaging a civilization. Yeah, or micromanaging is you know, what you can't do, what you get like, like and requiring obedience, requiring love. Like those are that is very micromanageable. That's uh, not 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 exactly like you, you go to a job, right? They might have a lot of rules and regulations at work. Micromanager is someone who looks over your shoulder and forces you to do everything. Oh, now you'll go do this. No, now you'll go do that. In sure. my in my it, job, it, we got exactly. a lot of rules, regulations, but, but, but there, I'm, it does I'm a lot happen of in jobs. But you're, that does happen because there's repercussions to your actions. The micromanage like you, someone may just perceive that as not being micromanaging. Yeah, but like. 
hey, if he tells you don't do X, Y, Z, and whatever, P and Q, and then you do it, and then there's punishment for it, that is certainly, yes, you have free will, I guess, you want to call that free will, but that there are serious repercussions is laid out through the Bible. Yeah, yeah, Uh, I'm not doubting that. When I use the word micromanage, I mean looking over your shoulder and direct consequence and uh, like retributive justice. Like as soon as you murder someone, you're punished instantly. God's not like, God's reactive. Well, no, well, no, I don't know, but let me think here. Is he re- Well, he does react to what you do, but he tells you what's going to happen too. Like, yeah, and sometimes, uh, and so, sometimes it doesn't even happen, depending on uh, certain he, he circumstances. Kind of he, he kind of doesn't follow through, or uh, you almost say he's being dishonest at certain points. There's there's certain double standards in how God operates throughout the biblical text. For example. Uh, Saul's punished for the Malachites. Saul yeah. Saul goes in, kills the Malachites, and and saves alive all their cattle, keeps alive their goods, keeps alive their king, and he's punished. The kingdom is withdrawn, taken from him for yeah. that. King David does the same thing. Zero commentary on that in the Bible. He, he fights the Malachites, and he loots them and spoils them. He does the same thing as Saul, but to different ends. So in a certain sense... Uh, just like just like the Genesis narrative we talked about, where God lowered His standard, or God changed His standard based on the conditions of what happened and what God learns, what God experiences, who people are. So basically, God just has a subjective standard. It's not any. It's not objective by any means. It's just based on whatever His personal opinions are and feelings. It, it appears that way. Yeah. So, but, like the whole. So that if this God is just God, might makes right, basically. is God has more power than us and ability, therefore we should follow him and worship him. Yeah, a lot of the biblical, uh, the Bible tries to compel wayward Jews who want to worship other gods rather than Yahweh. And it often points to his lovingness, his, his justice, his righteousness. And uh, even, even Job, it shows that that he, he rewards the righteous. He doesn't might make right. The kind of the point of the narrative was that that's not how God operates. And, and the point of the narrative is that... But he does, though. Just because one story says it doesn't operate. Well, no, wait a minute. Well, let me, we'll stay there. But yes, yeah, one story may say that, but that's not the narrative throughout the Bible. It is obviously God's overpowers. You know, you either listen to him or you reap the consequences. Well, the funny thing is when you go look at God's repentances throughout the Bible, when God repents, God changes his mind. Um, most often, God's repenting for his own sake. I think Ezekiel 8, 18, Ezekiel mm-hmm. 20, Ezekiel 22, one of those, uh, he goes through all these things that Israel did, and he keeps pointing out over and over, I repented for my own sake. For my own name. I repented. I didn't kill you guys. And this is the Exodus 32 narrative uh, where where Moses argues to God. God's ready to destroy all of Israel, kill them all, and uh, be done with them. But but then you have a problem because then how does he fulfill his promise to Abraham to make Abraham a great and mighty nation? So he says to Moses, he says, leave me alone. I'm going to kill all these people and I'm going to make a new people through you. And uh, Moses says, don't do that. These are your people. You're going to be killing your people. And his second argument is if you kill these people, what will the Egyptians say? The Egyptians will say, look at this evil God who just took all their pe- his people into the wilderness and just killed them all. It's like a death cult. And uh, ultimately, the Ezekiel commentary on this, it says God changed for his own sake. 
so that his name would not be profane among the pagan nation because God cares about his PR, public perception. <laughs> what? I, doesn't, I, don't, I don't know if I follow that. I mean, yeah, certain stories may highlight that, but obviously he doesn't care too much. I mean, when you take about those, some of those other stories, like the Amalekites where yeah. uh, he, he has... There's he, definitely... He forces human beings to go have to kill babies, man. I mean, that's... Like, how could we even call that good? Like, how could we call a God who tells human beings, instead of just, because you know God has this power, like he has the power, just, and you probably heard me argue this before. Yeah. Drop them dead. Like if you have enemies and you need to stop whoever people, you need Wasn't to Wasn't a pinpoint target and kill. Yeah, done. It's That's done, a good question. Right? It, ap- and, but it appears. He does, he does it in a human way based on how we do things in human culture, because these stories are based and written by human beings and they're most likely fictional. Uh, it's a valid argument. Yeah. And that would make more sense than having some God with his overcomplicated solution for a simple problem that he can solve. Like, mm-hmm. because really, in the end, like, I, I would imagine as a Christian, and I, at least from the Bible, what it says, it's to redeem mankind of sin, cleanse the sin of the world, right? Well, yeah, that's a pretty simple thing to God because it does, the, the atonement for sin in the Old Testament is blood sacrifice, killing animals. In many situations, uh, and then of course, when he dies on well, when he comes, I don't want to even say die. He didn't really die. He just kind of suffered some pain on the cross for a couple of hours, and then went back to where he was. Um, basically, he just did another blood atonement, right? Now that's just an option. That's just what God chose. He could have chose anything. Mm-hmm. He could have been like, I break my pinky finger, and all sin is atoned. So why do all these stories from the Bible seem like classic mythology that we see throughout the world? And why would it seem more reasonable just to think that this is just all mythology and human beings writing stories than to think this is all actually just real? Yeah, I, I haven't criticized that position. If if you'll yeah. notice, uh, I think yeah. that's a legitimate position that people mm-hmm. could rationally hold, and it doesn't make them irrational or evil or anything like that. Sure. Uh, again, I believe the Bible forensically. Um, we, we talked about that a little bit. I didn't want to get into that too much. But God does have alternative methods throughout the Bible of, quote-unquote, atoning for sins. You have a passage in Isaiah where Isaiah is brought up to the divine council, meets God, and of course, what, what's he afraid of? He's, he sees God, and he knows that if someone approaches God and is unclean, has sinned, uh, they will be killed. And so what they do is an atonement with a burning coal. So they rub a coal on him, and he's atoned of his sins, and he could talk to God. So there's a, there's a lot of question of what, what atonement means, what the purpose of uh, Christ's sacrifice was, and when. And Bart Ehrman points out, Bart mm-hmm. Ehrman's a secular scholar, that solid theories of the atonement did not develop until Paul came on the scene. Even in Acts, you have Jesus, in, in the beginning of Acts, it describes Jesus rising for 40 days and discussing things with his apostles. And guess guess what the subject matter was? Do you think it was about uh, atonement of Jesus? Mm-hmm. No, no, I, I, no, I wasn't. Yeah, no, I wasn't. It, not, yeah. It's about the kingdom of God. Every time you ha- have Jesus talking throughout the four Gospels, it's not actually about himself. He, he's, he's preaching the kingdom of God. And any time the conversation veers to who he is, if he's divine or or his role in all this, uh, he ends the conversation telling people to tell no one about those things because he was an apocalypticist. He believed in an eminent um, coming of God 
which would be this uh, cataclysmic uh, day of the Lord type event where God would return to earth and judge the wicked and the righteous. That was his main ministry. And you see that. Wasn't he? I'm sorry. He was God. Yeah. Paul says that uh, the fullness of the deity dwelt bodily. Uh, Again, um, we're describing what Jesus, you were talking about Jesus specifically. So like Jesus is apocalyptic in the sense of saying that he's going to come back and the world's going to end. But yeah, talking so, about it in a sense in a third person. Well, in Revelation, actually Revelation yeah. twenty twenty one, you have God coming to earth with Jesus, Jesus by yeah. his side. Uh, and so like they the same person. Uh could be. I have a podcast for anyone yeah. who's interested on bodily fluidity in the ancient ancient Near East, where they had this concept where God could be multiple people, but at the same time, one. And so I talk about, I use Benjamin Summers. He's, he's a Jewish, mm-hmm. a Jewish scholar who, who talks about ancient Near East religions and this historical evidence for bodily fluidity in Yahweh. So you would and, define God and Jesus had two separate minds then? Not necessarily, not, not in the ancient Near East context necessarily. How would Where you, you, you see these different gods in ancient Near East texts op, operating in cons, in concert, but they're separate. So they're one, but they're different. It's so a it's just two. It's so basically it's one mind with two physical representations. Not necessarily. <laughs> Again, it's, it's, I, mean, it's, I mean, you can't. It's either one mind or it's two minds. So if it's one mind and then there's two bodies, like it's just. Uh, two physical representations with one mind. I, I don't. In no other context, if will we ever call um, two separate minds one individual, right? But we're not thinking in the ancient Near East mindset. Again, this is yeah, yeah, this but, is a known feature in other ancient Near I East religions. It, I get it. I get it. Yeah, this is how they believe things. But we're talking about what is and truth and God and things. <laughs> Are like, we? I thought yeah. I was talking about what the biblical well, authors I mean, believe. Yes, but you believe. That. <laughs> I mean. Great, yeah, but but every if we're just talking about that, then great, yeah. People wrote stuff in, about what they think God was thousands of years ago. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. But, like I'm, I'm not. I mean, I'm interested in that, uh, but it's not that interesting in a sense. Like I can, I can take any really. I can just take Islam and be like, oh well, whoever wrote the Quran, this is what they thought God was, and whatever other religion, this is what they thought God was, and yeah. It's not interesting. Like, I, no, I'm not saying you're boring. Don't get me wrong. Well, don't, don't, I'm not coming out. I hope I'm not coming out the wrong way. Well, I, well here's I your takeaway from this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Here's your takeaway. Uh, how to deal with these Calvinists who don't believe actually what the Bible says. I'm telling you right now, this is what the Bible says, and here's your evidence. You could go to this evidence. You could look at all the things I'm pulling up. Sure. I got I got my quick verse yeah. reference uh, thing pulled up here. This is my project where I go systematically throughout the Bible and look at these various proof texts. We already talked about Enuma Elish and how it uses language. I got something and, you can give me that's good. Here's yes. something you can give me. Okay, give me how predestination doesn't work within a biblical context. Okay, so predestination. Let's go to God is open. All right. And let's go to predestination. And uh, very interesting, we and got... For the audience, real quick, I just want to explain kind of what predestination is. Predestination is the concept that God, before you're even born, will decide uh, whether you're going to heaven or hell. Is and it? Who, well, who he's going to offer grace to. Okay, predestination. Here's Clement's use of predestination. Pro orizato. The second order, you know, for those who are listening, don't cheat. Don't look at the screen. This is the word predestination as used by Clement of Alexandria. 
or no, just, just normal climate. I'm sorry. The second in order, and not any less than this, says, he says is, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Consequently, God above thyself. And on his interlocutor inquiring, Who is my neighbor? He did not, in the same way with the Jews, specify blood relation, or the fellow citizen or proselyte, or him that had been similarly circumcised, or the man uses one and the same law. So what word? What word is predestination in that long paragraph? Well, what I'm talking about is what Calvinists believe, how they believe it. Yeah, well, well, here's the thing. The Calvinists, they like to hijack words. And so when a Calvinist defines a word to you, chances are that it's not what the Bible actually uh, is talking about. They've they've hijacked language. And this this is a very common thing that you'll see even in modern politics, like the word liberal. The word liberal used to mean libertarian, someone who is open to for freedom. And it was hijacked by progressive causes to try to mean people who are for state intervention and state regulation. And so you, yeah, you would agree then that God does not, in biblical texts, decide who he's going to offer grace to before they're even born. Yeah, in the book of Revelation, actually, there's, there's this thing called the book of life. And in the Revelation, it talks about names being added and removed from the book of life. So how does that, how does that work with a God who pre-selects everyone from the beginning of time? It doesn't work. The, the biblical authors, had, had, there were not Greek metaphysicists. They had no concept of, quote-unquote, a timeless God outside of time, predestining everything and, and choosing certain people. It's just not there. And what they do is they turn to these proof texts. We already talked about how they proof text. They'll take vague phrases, pull them out of context, and make it mean what it absolutely doesn't mean. So even in Revelation, they'll say, oh, these names were written before the foundation of the world. No, no, the word is actually apo. It means sense. So, and it's not even about names written. It's about names not written. It says the names not written in the book of life since the foundation of the world. And so what it's describing is these are the people who are against God. These are the people whose names have never been added to the book of life. And also in Revelation, you have two different passages which talk about names being stricken, removed from the book of life. It, it's a it's a dynamic process. So in the what sense that- What does that mean to be against God? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, uh, atheism or practical atheism throughout the Old Testament, either you're, you morally sin uh, enough against well, we, God. Well, we can't get sin from the Bible. We already talked about it. I asked you earlier if we could define what sin was from the Bible, and you said we couldn't. That doesn't mean that they didn't have a concept that we could talk about. Well, I mean, how would we know it now, though? How would I know what sin is according to, like, if there's a God, how would I have any concept of what sin is without the Bible? Well, you could probably get an approximation from looking at how it's used throughout the Bible. I'm just saying a, a definitive definition, like, oh, a sin is a violation of God's moral character. That, that doesn't exist. They're, they're not metaphysicists. So just the rules God gives you is basically whatever, like if I were to look at a rule, if you go against God's rule, that would be a sin. Not necessarily. <laughs> so like, so then how would I determine what sin is? How, how would I have any concept of what morality and sin is? Right. Well, for the sake of this conversation, just use it how you would understand sin normally, like a moral sure. violation. Yeah, but that would be just purely based on me. Like yeah, what so, I feel by a subjective moral so standard. So, for example... So God would be completely separated from that, have no, have no relevance to it. Maybe. Again, the, the Bible's not a systematic theology, so if you're looking for hard and Ooh. fast metaphysical definitions... You're not going to find them. So well, you're, I'm not, you're I'm going not to have a, for a specific definition. What I'm trying to do is understand how I would know what morality is or what sin is. I'm not looking for a specific definition. I just need to, like, to me, there'd be no concept of it. 
Like mm-hmm. if I can't get it from there, I'm just basically guessing on my own mor- my own moral system, which has nothing to do with God. Yeah. So if we want to try to figure out the ancient Israelite conception of sin, you're going to have to just look to the Bible it's, and try to. Not, I'm not trying to get the ancient civil. I'm, I'm trying to get what is God's like. What is sin? exactly because you want to talk about not what the ancient writers believed, but you want to try to build a framework in which what they believed functions for us. Well, I mean, it should function for us if it's all, it's actually what God, if this, if they actually communicate with God and they have, we're in a yeah. relationship with God and then it, then it should function for us theoretically, so, shouldn't it? So there we are moving from tangible stuff, the stuff that we could agree on uh, to speculative uh, stuff. That's not, it's not biblical theology. You move from the realm of biblical theology into speculative theology. So uh, biblical theology doesn't tell us what right or wrong is. Um, not necessarily. No. So uh, good. We should be able to do whatever. Then if I can't figure out what it is, I could do whatever I want and there should be any repercussions, right? Uh, not necessarily. Not, I should say repercussions with God is what I should specifically say. There okay, are obviously so, repercussions within reality. So in the Old Testament, uh, the eighth practical atheism included things like murder, um, fornication, sex with prostitutes, especially in Israel, turning What's to wrong false. With sex with prostitutes? Why is that a bad thing? What if if a woman wants to sell her body? And I don't go to problem a married man by any means. Yeah, but I don't yeah. see anything morally wrong with a two consenting adults, a woman deciding she wants to sell her body, mm-hmm. uh, and a man agreeing to purchase, and they both consent to that situation. What's the wrongness about that? Yeah, that 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 would be our subjective evaluation of what the Bible says. No, you, no, you just use that as an example, like yeah, something that's because something that was described in the Bible. Yes, it's described as wrong in the Bible, but why is it described as wrong in the Bible? Yeah, so that's when you move from uh, concrete biblical theology into speculative theology. So it's just listen to the Bible, what it says, and if you don't listen to again, it... Uh, again, I mean, but, uh, but that's what you're telling me. That no, no, I'm, would Christine Hayes say that? Christine Hayes is a secular know. scholar of the Bible. <laughs> yeah. She cares about sure. canonical criticism. We want to figure out what the biblical authors believed... Uh, in the context of the Bible. But the biblical authors believe prostitution was a sin, correct? Uh, for the Levites especially and for uh, whoredom with with uh, temple prostitutes. New, new, new Testament Christians would also believe prostitution is a sin, correct? Uh, perhaps, or perhaps in the context of Levitical or priestly prostitution. Priestly... <laughs> I feel like we're being a little dev- a little evasive here, a little bit. I, I really do, and I'm not trying to be like I. I mean, just to be fair, I mean, I can't pin you down to anything here. Well, yeah, I, I can't that, figure out what what I, again. I, again, I mean, yes. it doesn't it doesn't matter what I personally believe. Well, my my concern. This, this this is what my book's about. My book's not about what I personally believe. Uh, take what I personally believe. Throw in the trash if you want. I, I don't personally care about what I personally believe. What, what do the biblical authors believe? So so why not write a book about Islam then? If it, if it has nothing to do with what you personally believe. Yeah, well, it, it, Islam's uninteresting to me. And uh, I would write a book about the Enuma Elish. And if I could read ergoretic Ur- texts, I would definitely write a book about the Baal cycle and uh, a lot of their cruciform text or their cruciform texts. I definitely uh, would because that's yeah, very interesting to me. I guess what I'm getting at is like... I, 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 you can't pin down anything with the Bible. Like, there's nothing I can pin down. I can't pin down what morality is. I can't pin down what sin again. Is. Yes, I can just take it. What people think is a sin, in whatever context they think it's a sin. Yeah, I, I don't know how like that. Uh, it, it's just not useful. 
in any kind of context. I guess arguing with some uh, like Calvinists, it may come in handy, I guess. But I don't see why some of their views on what they get from the Bible would be any different from um, some other view, like prostitution being wrong versus they're taking scripture and saying that, you know, some people are predestined to hell. You know, we're not going to lock down what hell is, I'm going to imagine, by looking at scripture. We're not going to know whether it's a, a burning, fiery place of eternal torture or whether uh, it's annihilation or like we're because it's just all, the bible the problem is the bible's all over the place the, the, exactly exactly it's just full of contradictory kind of concepts and ideas uh, uh understood um my book yeah. actually talks about this how there's there's tension in the text and uh, Christine Hayes talks about this in her lecture too. There's there's tension in the biblical text where things might not quite line up. Were they annihilationists? Did they believe in a shield, an underworld where there's no burning and and everyone is is put down, soul sleep, or just a serene environment? Did they believe in a burning hell, a Hades? Uh, there, there's there is tension in the text. Sure. I understand. Just, so the Bible's just like the world, where a bunch of people believe a bunch of different things, and there we are. Basically, yeah. So that, that's, that's why we have to contextualize it and try to figure out what they are saying. Sure, but that's what I kind of tried to get you to do. That's what I'm saying is like when I'm asking you, like, okay, then what is morality contextualized within the Bible? And I'm trying to get an understanding of what it is, and you're telling me no, we can't understand it, or I'm, I'm uh, saying no, specifically your sin. And maybe I don't want to misrepresent. Maybe maybe that isn't exactly what you said. To be fair. Um, so but, if if I were to write a systematic yeah. theology book, those are the questions that would be asked. But again, uh, canonical criticism, we care more about what they believed. And then we could try to, on top of that, speculate what kind of metaphysical systems, because you want a metaphysical system uh, on which, which, which has defined rules of uh, cause and effect and something like that. The Bible's not written like that. And uh, Christine Hayes' lecture, she's a secular scholar. She understands this. And she points this all out in her lecture that this is not the purpose of the Bible. And there's biblical tension in, in the Bible itself on these, these concepts. Well, we can't say the purpose when we say Bible. It's a bunch of different books written at different time periods in history by different people, not by the original authors. Um, I mean, even if you take the New Testament, I think, I think, the, I think uh, Mark, which is the earliest um, of the four Gospels, was written at least 60 years after what we would claim is Jesus' death. So, like, not by the original authors, obviously not in the same language that they were speaking at the time. It was Aramaic. Um, and mm. then it was written, I believe, in Greek first, and then translated to uh, English later on. So, like, trying to understand what these people are, like, there's no cohesive message in the Bible. It's just stories that people try to piece together to try to get a cohesive message. And that's why it's riddled with contradictions and, and I think you can read scripture and you can look at it like, yes, it's a, it's a more generous way to look at it as God's curious, like, oh, he doesn't know everything and things like that. Um, well, then at that point, I'm like, oh, great, we just have this God who's more powerful than us and just basically lives over our heads and does what he pleases and we better listen to him or there are repercussions. Mm-hmm. I mean, that doesn't, that's, that's awful. <laughs> I'll be honest, that's okay. awful to me. Yeah, I, 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 our, our subjective... Yeah. Feelings about something doesn't determine its truthfulness. So well, we they're, can't they're, determine the truthfulness from the Bible because we did, there's no way to get the truthfulness from the Bible. Like I said, we can get historical web, we can get historical sites, we can get cities, we can get yeah. places things may have happened, but that's about it. We can't get if these things actually happened, like God actually communicated with these communicated with those people. 
Yeah. We can't actually get any of that information. We can't get what God was actually trying to communicate with us. How would we get any of that from historical context? Well, or, we or treat history. the Bible like we would any other historical text is what I'm saying. In the same way, we believe the acts and deeds of Abraham Lincoln, Bart Ehrman's example. Bart Ehrman uses fair. Abraham Lincoln has way more historical evidence than something from the Old Testament, three, four thousand. Bart Ehrman's example. Ago. Bart Ehrman's not a Christian. Uh, sure. So using him as an example should be legitimate. But uh, Pompey, for uh, example. Sure, but uh, being a Christian or atheist, I can still disagree with you. Like, like, but that, I, just fact wise. There's far more historical evidence with anything Lincoln did compared to something from the Old Testament, which minimum we're talking two to five. No, we're talking way further than that. You're talking five to six, five, seven thousand years old. Yeah, you, you got a historical problem where evidence degrades over time. That's true. Yeah, well, and we don't even like we have no why. Why would we believe anything from the Old Testament just because we write stories using cities that may have existed? How do we know anything within those stories would be true besides the fact that these cities existed? Well, if, if we were to use a historical way of treating the text, we like, for example, when we read, read uh, the Roman historians, uh, we, we go and look to see if what they say makes sense, if it fits with other historical texts which describe the same history, and if there's uh, physical evidence for that. Sure. What would be the physical evidence of God and Job having a conversation? There wouldn't be. There wouldn't be, right? They're, okay, what would be the physical evidence of Adam and Eve and God having a conversation? There wouldn't be. Conversations yeah, are there historical. There would be no evidence that there was a serpent in the garden. There'd be no evidence that there was a knowledge, a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. There's no evidence that the Jews were ever held in captivity uh, within Egypt. It's a, it's a debatable point. And not well, my purpose uh, of being uh, here. But, but you're bringing up history and context within all this in an argument to look at uh the bible okay but I, none of these I, is again I, I didn't bring this up uh you sure. you brought us to this topic of if sure. the bible is true or false uh i tr I've, I've been trying to stick on the yeah. topic of what does the bible say sure that makes sense yeah no i mean but the bible says lots of things right and there's a lot there's lots of things the bible says but there's no way to verify them so it's just like, okay, great, the Bible says here that God flooded the earth. Great, God flooded the earth. We don't know. We don't know if the earth was flooded. Well, okay. the, a flood would or, <laughs> would be a massive catastrophe. And again, I'm not here to debate science, but you, you, fossilization is a rapid process. You'd have millions of dead things buried in rock layer all over the earth. You've heard that before. Sure. Uh, so there there would be, that. That's a, it's a different debate, but there would be forensic evidence of a global flood. And that is something people could debate. I, I yeah, I, I think you have a small minority of young Earth creationists uh, who use young Earth creation scientists, but that's by far, once again, just like the dinosaur thing we were talking about earlier, is the minority. Uh, understood. Just like, just like that, evolution, like I'm not saying that I can't prove evolution to be a fact, but by far, by far, the majority of scientists would believe that evolution is the at least best explanation for what's going on right now. That, that might be the case, yeah. Yeah. So, like, and then we, even, okay, so then we take a story like the flood. Like, you, if we think the whole Earth was flooded, what, did we literally put two of each kind of species on the on the ark? I actually have a podcast on the flood. Mm -hmm. Basically, every single 
culture from around the world, diverse cultures. You can pull it up on Talk Origins. Talk's Origins is an evolutionist site. Basically, every single culture from around the world has a flood narrative in the same yeah. format. So it seems yeah. like a shared yeah stories get passed along. It and seems like and cultures a, and stuff all over the world, all over the sure, world. Sure, it happens. Yeah, that's every, no every doubt. culture. But, so but that's very. But doesn't mean the flood actually happened. It seems like uh, ingrained historical memory for all these people, and, no, and no, the, no, no. the narratives. You're, you're just talking about random stories. You're talking about cultures have similar stories of some kind of flood. That's fine. Stories right. and then we also talked about these people travel throughout the world and things like that. That's a real stretch. Uh, you could go to the Talk Origins site and look at the different flood stories. Again, I'm not here to talk about the accuracy of the Bible, but what the Bible says. Sure. I mean, the Bible says two of each animal got on the ark also, but that's no, it, impossible. It, it says well, two of each kind. I'm sorry. Two of each no, kind of animal. It, no, it, it actually says seven. <laughs> seven of each. So of each clean. Of uh, each clean. And then they, within how many thousands of years, repopulated the entire planet to where we are now? Like what the scientists, you know, obviously that's not even physically possible because obviously, these, and they also, when these animals got off the ark, they would simply eat each other. I mean, besides that factor, if, if it was literally a worldwide flood where everything died, mm -hmm. you're talking the insects, you're talking every type of species of everything, fish, insect, all the fish in the ocean would be killed because of the oxygen adjacent, the amount of oxygen that would be in the water. Um, so See. there's huge problems with that being possible uh, yeah maybe but you, you're talking about no, uh, things uh, you're talking about things that would or would not have forensic evidence that we could prove from science or whatnot that is one of those things that people can debate that would have some physical evidence of sure like you, it's it's impossible like you can't have you can't repopulate the earth from one boat of two of each whatever you what was the number you said well, I got pulled up here. I got yeah. uh, Genesis 7-2. Yeah. Take seven pairs of all clean animals, male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, male and his mate. Okay, so take with you seven pairs of all clean animals. Okay, what would be a clean animal? Uh, you, it, you'd look at the kosher food food laws. Uh, they can't have, like, clothing, hoofs, and stuff like that. It would be the kosher food. What, what would insects fall under? That's a good question. So, like, we, we couldn't bring all the insects that we have on the planet right now onto a boat. It, it just doesn't I, I make sense. It, and you, can't, you can't bring all the reptiles that we have on the planet onto a boat. And then they get off the boat in this one location on top I, of whatever mountain. It, and then they I'm not here to make the, this uh, debate. Know, Does that make sense? Is, I, realistically, I know that, you believe I know, this is what I know. I, I understand <laughs> that. You could turn to Genesis or, or – uh, answers in Genesis estimates of, of how much space it would take to house all these animals and stuff like that. You yeah, could do I'm, that. I'm That's fine. Repopulating the earth, like it's just not feasible. Like, and then you're talking well, what, populations. Talking Moses to what now? So you're talking what according to the Bible, two four, two three thousand years is what I think younger creationists yeah. believe. Populations work uh, very interestingly. Like if there's a catastrophe, like all the birth rate skyrockets. Have you? Have you done any like population studies and stuff like no, that? No, I haven't. But I mean, you look at like how did how how come we have kangaroos on Australia? <laughs> Why do we have animals that are landlocked in the certain areas, and then we have all the other like animals? And it just none of it makes it. That's the problem, which is looking at the Bible. It doesn't fit. Like, I, we have I to hear fit you. Our narratives into it again. Right, not what know. I'm here to debate. Not sure. what I'm here to debate. But I, I do got to say, man, uh, I, I appreciate it. But, you know, to to your listeners and things like that, but this is important 
because I imagine you are a Christian and yeah. you are you do a Christian podcast, I would imagine. Right. Right. And you talk about all different kind of Christian topics. I would, I would assume. I don't uh, well, know. I haven't watched it. Well, God is open. It fo- focuses yeah. on the nature and character of God. So a lot Correct. of my listeners are old earth evolutionists or young earth creationists. There's a medley. There's a different perspectives mm-hmm. on the atonement, the purpose of uh, Jesus's death and resurrection, stuff like that. I tend to mm-hmm. focus on the biblical picture of God. Sure. And Which sometimes... doesn't match up with science. This is, that's the key we need to focus on here because the biblical does not match with science. We talked about the sun, the dinosaurs, and now this. With we, the we talked now about historical now. evidence. And so there's certain mm-hmm. historical actions that wouldn't be, quote unquote, provable or disprovable by science. And miracles would fall under that category, as Bart Ehrman, I think, points out. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but, yeah. Well, anyways, what else do we want to talk about? So, <laughs> yeah. What, was there anything else before? Because we've been going about almost two hours. Okay. I think that, yeah. And uh, I usually like to keep it about two hours. But I would love to have you on again. Don't get me wrong. Dude, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, and uh, you're definitely an interesting guy. I think you get, you're, you're very well versed in a lot of this stuff. So uh, to say some positive things. Um, but was there anything that you had maybe seen from my videos or conversations that uh, maybe you wanted to address now, uh, maybe for the last kind of segment of the show. Last kind of, I, I wrote up a little bit of notes be, of of your conversation with this uh, hyper Calvinist guy. Oh, yeah. that, that poor kid. I I hope he grows up. I, I absolutely I absolutely think you destroyed the guy. I don't think yeah. he knew how to answer a lot of your questions, and I think a lot of it had to go back to his metaphysics that he wants to import onto the Bible. And as Christine Hayes again. Your, your listeners could take a free Yale University course by a secular scholar who treats the Bible with, with the perspective of canonical criticism. What did the Bible mean in its finished form to its audience? And I think that's an incredibly valuable, valuable perspective before we determine whether or not to believe the Bible. What, did, what does the Bible actually say? Mm-hmm. So he talks. He's talks. He doesn't even take the standard Calvinist position on uh, Adam having free will. A lot of Calvinists will say Adam did have free will, but then they can't really square that with predestination. And that's uh, that's that's pretty funny. Let's see. God writes to this. Mm-hmm. Oh, baby's coming out of the womb line. So let's talk about figures of speech again. Now that was one of the things I really wanted to talk about. Sure. And uh, he's quoting a Psalms. I feel like. Hold on one second. I need another beer. Uh, give me one second, guys. Sorry. Beer break. Be right back. One minute. Sorry. Sorry about that, guys. Yeah. Apologize. Go ahead, my friend, please. So just talking about how language works, and I know you could appreciate this because I know you take seriously uh, what the, what how, how to read, reading comprehension techniques. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your Calvinist buddy, he says that, uh, you know, babies come from the, the womb lying. And then he said, uh, Psalms 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. And so King David is talking here, and what he's doing is he's talking about his abject sinfulness. Mm-hmm. And so what it, what it functions is it, it's, it's hyperbolic. And we understand this is how King David always writes when, when you look at the Psalms attributed to him. Uh, it's always in this hyperbolic uh, sense where, oh God, you did this, you searched me and you know me and you follow me around. And, and it's very poetic and very forceful. So you'll have texts like Psalms 22, 10. He says, on you, I was cast from my birth, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. So uh, if someone wants to come to the Bible mechanically and say, 
oh, you read this and you read it like it's a mechanical uh, babies lie from the birth. Babies are conceived in sin. Look, there's my original sin proof text. But that's just not how language works. Mm -hmm. it, it, there, hyperboles are everywhere. And I don't know if you noticed that, but that last sentence I just said, hyperboles are everywhere, was mm -hmm. itself a hyperbole. That doesn't mean everything that everyone says all the time is, is hyperbole. What it means is hyperbole is just so common that we, we use it without even thinking about it. So in Psalms 22.10, he says this, On you as cast from my birth, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. So it, it seems at first contradictory. But you have to understand genre. You have to understand how language works, how it functions. And it doesn't function with this, this literal, wooden literalism. It, it's, it's hyperbolic. So you would say the Bible doesn't teach that um, uh, baby, babies are born with a sinful nature no. and needing, requiring, uh, just simply being born requires that you have Christ's salvation. No, I wouldn't say that. So you'd be more of like a, a, well, the Bible would say more that the position is that after people sin, that it requires some type of salvation, basically? Uh, perhaps. Uh, the Old Testament, remember, Israel is supposed to be a priest nation. So there's a question I posted the other day in the God is Open Facebook group about atonement. Because you had Israel, who needed to atone to become part of the priest nation. And in the post-apocalyptic world, I know, post-apocalyptic, after the day of the Lord, uh, the apocalyptic texts describe Israel as being this priest kingdom to whom the Gentiles bring tribute. But wait, are, are all the unbelievers, are all the unrighteous, are all, all of them dead? No, they, they believed in this system where they would inherit like a kingly role on the earth. And uh, the Gentiles who were really evil. Those would be put down by God. They would be judged by God. But then there's this other category of people who aren't really evil and they're mm -hmm. just judged based on some sort of uh, morality and uh, they would be allowed to flourish on earth still in this mm -hmm. post judgment world. Would you say that, uh, so if we look at some of this stuff like these, this, this idea that God wanted to make a priestly nation, uh, why, this is going to sound funny. All right. I'm already going to warn you. <laughs> why? What's up with the circumcision, man? What's up with the skin? being cut off of the of the male genitalia like what does that have anything to do with being a priestly nation and or anything like that this is this is all stuff that makes me think yeah you know, there's weird human shit the human beings yeah <laughs> like, it, got, it is interesting got some uh, weird concept and less it, likely to be some kind of being that's all powerful telling you to cut off your foreskin it, it was definitely it definitely set them apart from other nations especially in rome and that was the biggest hang-up in acts why 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 paul he got really popular and the reason he got popular is because all these jewish synagogues had all these gentiles and they all they all wanted to be uh, uh they all wanted to be israelites or yahweh worshipers they were sure. the god fearers and the one thing the one thing stopping them is they didn't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so his message that you don't have to circumcise resonated really well with them. But it seems to be just a symbolic thing for setting apart a priestly people from the rest of the people. Mm -hmm. That's what it seems to me. Interesting. Um, all right, man. I think we've done this long enough. I, I don't like to do these too long, and I'd love to have you back on or have you, you can invite me on your podcast sometime. I'd love to do it. Um, if any of your fans are listening and you have people who like to come on these channels and talk religion, yeah. email me at SkylarFictionShow at gmail.com or just comment on a video of mine and I'll figure out a way to get in contact with you. 
But the email, SkylarFictionShow@gmail.com, is the easiest way and most effective way to get a hold of me. Google Plus and YouTube messaging sucks sometimes. Um, uh, let me say this. It was a wonderful conversation. Very fun. Uh, yeah, I liked you're, it. You're, you're a good guy, Chris, uh, Christopher. Um, and uh, I thought you had some uh, really interesting stuff to say about uh, definitely some of these biblical studies. Um, and uh, I hope to have you on again. Uh, do you have any uh, last words for the audience? Maybe once again, tell them about your show or where they can get a hold of you or anything like that. Yeah, uh, go check out uh, God is Open, godisopen.com. A lot of the references that we pulled up during this show are available there. I got the verse quick reference. I got those Enuma Elish excerpts. I have my podcast on the Enuma Elish. Very interesting stuff. I know you might not like ancient religions, but I think it's it's incredibly fascinating. Listen to God is Open. And uh, read my book. My book is not written from the perspective that the Bible is true. And so you should, it should resonate with you in that sense that it's, it's about canonical criticism. What, what was the audience or what, what did the author want to say to his audience? All right. I thank you so much for talking to me. And uh, again, I, I like your show. I like how you handle the Matt Slick. Of, I, got, I got podcasts on Matt Slick. I met this guy <laughs> in person. Yeah, I met this guy in person, and he he is all about the proof. I'll tell your your listeners this this one quick story real yeah, quick. Please. And uh, he was talking about oh God is omniscient and omniscient, and he knows everything. And what's his proof text? <laughs> Check this out. <clears throat> this is uh, one John three twenty, and this is his proof text. He says, "Whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows everything." Mm-hmm. So. I, I instantly reply to the guy. I says, I say one John two twenty. I'm going to switch to the NIV because he uses the majority text. I say one John two twenty. man knows everything. And so he's, he's like, what? And his eyes get really wide. And I read it to him. I say, but you have an anointing from the Holy one and you know, all things. And he went ballistic. He went crazy. Oh. He runs to his computer like this, like real fast. Cause his computer's up on the stage and he's, he says, this version doesn't say that. This doesn't say that. I said, uh, it's in the Byzantine text. And he, he had no idea what the Byzantine text meant. Uh, Byzantine text is the Greek text used for the majority text. The New King James is based off of that. And the King James is based off the Textus Receptus, which is pretty close to the majority text. And so he's checking different English versions. He didn't know what the Byzantine text was. He doesn't know Greek. Oh, he doesn't know Greek. It was so funny. It was so funny. And uh, But it just blew his proof text out of the water because... Within the same context of his proof text, he wants to take this little snip, snippet that, oh, God knows all our future and everything like that. In the same context, it says man knows all things. And it, 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 mm. it, it could, it, he couldn't internalize it. It was funny. It was, Dude, uh, I, should that, have you, uh, I should have you come on one time when I bring one of these other, uh, these other Christians on to talk about yeah. this stuff. That would be really interesting, actually. Uh, you know, I had thought about doing a weekly thing where I do uh, Bible study with Skylar Fiction and uh, just starting from the very beginning of the Bible uh, and reading it and maybe do an hour episode every uh, week. And maybe I should have you on sometime for that. If you yeah, get that'd time. be good. That'd be fun. Um, yeah, yeah, my, yeah, go ahead. Uh, real quick, my book, my book actually does this. I pull out different, unique, interesting chapters of the Bible and go over basically verse by verse. So before you do Genesis 1-1, read, read what I say on that. And I quote Christine Hayes on it. And Christine Hayes, go look at her stuff. It's great. The um, 
uh, what was I going to say? Crap. Yeah, they won't let me on the bottom of fucking Wing Nut Show anymore. They, they completely blocked me out of there. Um, it's kind of sad. Uh, these every time I actually tossed to Dustin Seegers last time he was on there. He had done a debate with an atheist, uh, and I didn't think the atheist did that well, to be honest with you. Um, and I came in to ask questions afterwards, and it took about 15 minutes before Dustin was like, I don't want to talk to this guy anymore, and yeah. got me out of the room. They're, they're uh, all intellectually dishonest. Uh, <laughs> I don't put it. any stock in them. Well, what's interesting is like they're always trying to get atheists onto their show to have conversations. I'm like, I'm coming onto your show. Like, I'm bringing views. Like, like I'm no by no means any kind of YouTube superstar. They barely got, you know, 2,000 subscribers or something like that. But at least, like, people were watching and they were interested within their, their community. You know, mm-hmm. like, um, you know, what we, we kind of self title it called the Great Debate Community. There's an official page run by Steve McRae on Google. But this thing's been around a while, like, this Great Debate uh, concept. Uh, and it basically happened through Google and these Google Hangouts, which is what we're streaming live through YouTube. Um, and it's nothing new. We've been doing this for years. Um, and I started way back in the day by just taking clips from these hangouts of people arguing and adding classical music and little things. And then I started getting involved with the debates and having some fun. And, uh, you know, you get better after a while. You, get to, yeah. you start to understand things more. And, uh, and I'll be the first to tell you, I've had Christians correct me on things where uh, I misunderstood something in the Bible or uh, uh, didn't completely understand what I was arguing. Like, I'm not somebody who's always right on things like that. But um, – but it's fun, and there's all there's all these aspects to it, right? There's the entertainment aspect. Uh, there's the uh, interesting things where people just like to listen to stuff like this, the theology stuff. Um, there is learning from one another and getting to know each other's concepts and ideas. Um, and I hope to continue to do it here. So, uh, anyways, let me wrap this up, uh, guys. Uh, like I said, Skylar Fiction Show at Gmail dot com or message me, thumbs up, all that kind of fun stuff you can do on YouTube for me. I would appreciate share my videos. And uh, if you want to appear on the show, uh, and Christopher will tell you, he just messaged me on YouTube. And I was like, yeah, sure. Anybody who messaged me and wants to come on the show, I will let them on the show. I'm not picky. Luckily, Christopher is a good guy and actually has some good content to talk about. But I, you know, we end up sometimes with people like Hyper Calvinist, uh, who was really awful. I, I, liked, I liked that episode. It was a good episode. Oh, it's fun, man. I, you sometimes, man, I had a guy once tell me that he hoped I got raped one time. Uh, that was a fun conversation. He got really mad at me. We were talking about morality. <laughs> and... Uh, and it didn't go well, but he, but you never know. You know, I had a guy, oh, who was the Johnny KZG. If you want to watch a good laugh, man, go, go, you, you got to go to some of the older videos, any conversation video. Uh, it says conversation with it, but there's a conversation with Johnny KZG. I think is his name. Oh, and he had this whole thing about, he thinks that atheists will stab Christians in the neck in alleys and, um, all atheists, not just like some atheists, like yeah. any atheist that had the opportunity to stab a Christian in the neck would do so. <laughs> like, it was a trip. Anyways, message me, do something. I'd love to have more. We do have, uh, just for my viewers in general, uh, I've been talking about this, but very, very soon I'm going to have a weekly show with a co-host, uh, which I will be introducing very soon. And it's going to be a like um, a little bit more open. We're going to talk a lot more probably about politics. Uh, we'll still have, you know, atheism and religious discussions but it's going to be more of an open show with a format and we're going to talk about whatever we want to talk about that's entertaining and hopefully uh you as an audience will enjoy it uh but until next time guys uh it's been a wonderful time uh and i appreciate everybody showing up and hanging out and watching me as always so subscribe and you know make the world a better place all right thank you
picks, brother. Hey, bro, dude, it was awesome. Thank you so much for coming out, man. You're you're a good sport, and and honestly, um, dude, great combo, man. I really appreciate a lot of your um, uh, your knowledge on this stuff, man. And you you put your money where your mouth is. There's so many people who don't like that just follow something but don't bother to look into it, uh, mm-hmm. and it's refreshing, to say the least. So. Um, but bro, yeah, please. Anytime you want to come on and talk about something, I would love to have you on more often. Uh, you were very reasonable, and I think uh, I think you would be good uh, to have on regularly or something. But uh, let me know if you ever want me to come on your podcast, bro. Um, Sounds I'm good. Welcome on your YouTube uh, channel. You already are. <laughs> uh, that's what I figured. No, no, I know. But you know, just officially, like if you really mm. want me, you know, I don't have to put it on my channel. But like if it's just your show yeah. and you want me to come on, it's vital. Sounds good. Thank you very right, much. Brother. Hey, no problem. Right. Anytime, bro. You take it easy, all right? All right. Oh, hey, um, yeah, in the future, try – like you can – well, either that or message me through Hangouts, like through Google Plus, now that we're kind of friends on there. Yeah. Um, if, and if not, email me if you have a problem getting a hold of me, okay? Sounds good. All right, dude. Take it easy, brother. Yeah.